any sort of public conversation? Yeah. Probably. Okay. Um, <laughs> At least like, I think so. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I, we are doing it, making an effort to record more demos of things for work because one thing that happened majorly with the last changeover was there was sparse documentation on anything. And even on, like, big important services that are, like, really expensive, it's not clear how we use it. Okay. And we know that, like, oh, well, look at that. I tinkered with it and it broke stuff. So we need this, but I don't know what it's doing or why we're spending $2,000 a month on it or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we are demoing. Basically, every time we learn something, we'll either write a doc for it um, or do a video demo of it. And I, I was doing one of the coworker. He wanted to record his own thing. And he spent, like, 10 minutes just hemming and hawing, getting over the nervousness of it. I'm like, dude, who's going to watch this? Yeah. Like, people in two years who are going to know nothing else about you other than I wish that guy still worked here because I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, right? You'll be fine. Um, and I have no shyness about anything on this, and you know, so... I feel like yeah. the first few episodes, I remember being crazy nervous, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The more you do something and find out that you're not going to be absolutely destroyed for it, the more your brain starts to adjust and be like, oh, okay, this is this is not such a dangerous thing to do. Hmm. Yeah, I'm learning that a lot in my job. Yeah. So, uh, first couple times that you're in court representing someone, it's nerve-wracking. When your case is called and the judge is looking at you, what's, what's happening, counsel? What are we doing here? And you're just yeah. like... You know, the first couple of times you, you freak out a little bit, but... Well, especially because this person's future is in your hands, at least somewhere. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean it's usually not that dramatic, someone, but... But, yeah, but you, you have some influence on it. Yeah, and so it, it does, it makes you... But even that, you're not even really thinking about that. that. That's more, like, in a general, like, abstract sense, but just in general, like a judge. Mm. It's been different lately because of COVID, they're over WebEx, but... Usually they're up on a bench, kind of high above you. Yeah. They have that. They have the microphone. The they're projecting their voice, mm-hmm. and they're like, and they call your case, and it's like, all right, showtime, you know. And it's just like, oh shit, uh, uh, judge, uh, we're looking for a new date. Uh, you know, you're just yeah. at first, you just kind of scramble for words. But my dad always had beef with courthouses. He's like, he goes. I mean, in general, he loves architecture, but whenever he goes to a courthouse or a state house, he's like, did they really need? 20 huge ass steps leading up to it and these <laughs> massive columns in the space. No, all this is to intimidate you. Okay. It's to tell yeah. you that no, this it is. is big and powerful and can beat you down. He's pretty much right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fortunately, though, that only describes like some courthouses. Those are like the nice ones. Okay. A lot of courthouses are pretty small, shabby. Like I've, I've seen really? I've seen courtroom proceedings, dude, that are like basically in closets. Oh, wow. Like sometimes literally. Like there was a, there was a, I think I already did it. A couple of, so I used to work in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and they had um, DUI, like a DUI-specific court, right? Mm-hmm. So they would have a judge doing preliminary hearings, which is just to determine whether there's probable cause for the DUI charge, right? Okay. And, and so this judge would be in a room. It would just be like two or three like tables, like long, you know, these elongated folding tables. Yeah, yeah, with the, the and, legs that... Yeah. Right, and he'd be at the one table, and then there'd be defense on one side, prosecution on the other, and they would just argue, and the judge would just be like, okay, I think, uh, you know, that's enough, and I, I find that there was probable cause, and that was it, like, it was, and it was a legitimate judge, right? you know, but you're doing them, especially for things like preliminary hearings in front of, like, you know, sometimes magistrates, but also judges, they can be tiny, tiny rooms, wow. So only he's talking about the big, like, you know, Supreme Court and, you know, these like the I, higher I level up for a traffic ticket. And I got that got that treatment. You yeah. contested a traffic ticket. I did. Nicely done, sir. Did yeah. you win? Yeah, you should always contest everything. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Contest, are you kidding? Well, always I, contest everything. Uh, you get at you least never the, know when I did it. You get at least the forty five dollar court fees charge. 
So well, it might not be worth it if you end up, you know, not getting that. I reduction. suppose, yeah, you could get the small amount of court costs, but you know. wait, even though you won, you had to pay the court costs. I mean, you showed up at court, you took up some of the court's time. You got to pay some fees for that. Don't I pay for the court's time with my taxes? You might Where, think so, sir. Where's Where's David to yell about how inefficient <laughs> and stealing this is? This is, uh, this is also like it's partly because you were. It was such a small charge, I think. Yeah. Usually for like larger charges, if you get a dismissal, you don't pay court costs. Okay. It's only if you get if you get convicted. Otherwise, you're not going to get this was charged a... simply to just because you had wasted the court's time. Like, it's not your fault. Yeah. If you're getting your charge dismissed, then clearly the state is at fault, at least in some respect, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, that's not, that's not on you. Mm-hmm. But they don't care for lower things it's weird the amount of very in very minor cases how often constitutional rights just don't fucking matter like right, no right. one gives a shit for the little things they care for the big charges yeah but for little tiny things well it I can assume, be rough i assume it's due to the whole the courts only have so much capacity and if everyone contested every small thing nothing would get done so well, we have to disincentivize people Char- you know, contesting the small things. Or yeah. stop trying to get people in trouble for every small thing. That would be a much better solution. But yeah. the, but that's not, I mean, the small things, sure, but like you could, you could handle the small things because they're usually handled so quickly. Okay. And that's part of the constitutional right thing is that they're not, they're not giving you necessarily a full hearing for the, like traffic tickets. You know, you're not going right. to get a full amount of process that you think of like a trial and all these witnesses being called and all that stuff. It's the major charges where you'd have an actual trial because that's when, you know, if we had every single person who was charged with a misdemeanor or a felony, that'd be 10,000 plus people a year in Denver alone. Yeah. And having a trial for every single one of those cases would Not literally true. collapse the system. It wouldn't be possible. And we're actually seeing the limits of that now because trials didn't go for like a full year in Colorado because of COVID. Oh. And just now they're starting back up like last month. Holy shit. So they're now that whole backlog that happened because of COVID is they're finally having to reckon with that. And um, so out of curiosity, I know this is just a personal taste matter, but would you prefer that they expand the capacity of the courts or that they um, have less laws? I actually, I don't mind the way it's done now. Uh, you give the prosecutors a lot more, a lot of discretion to offer deals to get cases off their docket. The problem with them having less laws is, first of all, most laws by far are fairly just. The punishments themselves may not be, but it's probably good we have drunk driving laws. Yeah. Or laws against violence, or laws against you know, uh, you know some, some of the more minor ones like public intoxication or drug possession. I mean, you could definitely argue those should go. I don't think anyone's going to argue with you on those things, but like laws against selling loose cigarettes, just as a you know example, since we're going to be talking about a sort of thing like this later. It seems like sure maybe you could have some regulation on things, but when you think about it, in the end, any law to be enforced has to be at the end, enforced by large men with muscles or guns right. using violence if someone isn't going to go along with the law. So how would you regulate it then without the large men with guns and I mean, potentially I'm, using violence? That's the thing. I think uh, you just you decide some things are not worth that level of violence, and so you don't regulate those things. So you just allow loose cigarettes to be sold? Yeah. Okay. That, that, that would be my preferred solution, just less laws in general. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, I don't necessarily agree. I, I think that's valid. I just don't... Um, I don't know if it, if, yeah, I suppose for loose cigarettes, I mean, that's, that's one that I, I have a hard time defending just because it's such a stupid charge, right? I mean, but. Neighborhood it, noise yeah. ordinances? My, like, my, I mean, like, my, my inner, uh, 
John Stuart Mill style libertarian is asking, where's the harm? Right. Yeah. Well, with, with cigarettes, with loose cigarettes, no harm. I, at all. If, any, ta- if anything, taxes. if anything, you're serving, you're serving a, you're doing a public service. Right. Right. Now, granted, you're you're skimming taxes, whatever, but you already pay taxes on the cigarettes when you bought them, right? Yeah. If I'm going to sell them, if I can turn them and sell them on a profit, I'm an entrepreneur. Like, you know, that, the that's... government needs a cut of every single profit. <laughs> so whenever money changes hands, you give some to the government. <laughs> so, but the the noise ordinance thing, I can, I mean. Again, when you say that the the right, like logical con- the, the end consequence is somebody showing up at your house with a gun, but like you know, my neighbors are putting in new cabinets the last couple of days, and it's awesome yeah. and good for them. It looks cool. They were applied enough to start at nine a.m. Mm-hmm. and finish usually by the end of business hours, right? Yeah. Uh, if they had started at say two in the morning on Friday night or something, mm-hmm. I'd have been pissed, mm-hmm. and I probably would have called. I would have asked them to stop, but you know, whatever. Yeah. If it escalated to the point of involving the police, yeah. I'd be like. Why are they doing this at two in the morning? You know, make them not make them stop, officer. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've had some loud parties before, and I've never actually had the cops called on me. Although in retrospect, probably should have a few times because they went to like you know two, three with noise. Anyways, I I understand the noise ordinances. I think they're a good idea. Uh, people shouldn't be kept up like that. But you know, then you always face the the prospect of maybe things really go south, like they do in rare occasions, and somebody is killed. Because the kids were playing their music too loud. Like, that sucks. And I mean, that's, um, that's a huge part of all of this, right? I mean, yeah. a lot of, for example, debates about guns and gun restrictions. That's largely what it comes down to. Like, a lot of people want there to be regulations of guns. And, you know, I think we're all at least a little sympathetic to it. It makes some sense. I mean, these are highly powerful, you know, machines, and you could easily kill someone with them. However, if you make it against the law to own a gun... Well, now, if someone does own that gun and they are and the police find out, it's not like and it's going to be like, you know, some of the more like totems of, of the of the woke types where it's like it's going to be like black people a lot, you know, that yeah. own these things. And now the cops have every reason to arrest them and perhaps use violence against them. That's what it means to have a law. I mean, you said that earlier, and that's an important point. When you have a law, laws are laws are great. We, we want there to be some standards in, in our communities. We don't want people killing others or driving drunk and all these things but at the same time when you make something a law you have to understand implicitly what you're doing is allowing police to take this person and put them in a cage mm-hmm. right that is that is you have to at least confront that reality that's yeah. absolutely true that, that's part of like we're having discretion you, you can have discretion on the part of individual individual officers you know i've been pulled over a handful of times a couple of times by cops who really wanted to get me in trouble but had no had no like reasonable ability to do so hmm. And then one time by a cop who totally could have given me a ticket, but he was nice and understanding. I thought I was in a lane that would let me go straight, but it was a left turn only. And I went through the light and I'm like, oh, great, I did it. And I'm like, oh, oncoming traffic. And the, <laughs> and the, car, the car behind me pulls into the bike lane or whatever just to let the cop behind him in front before, like, you know, the cop even had his lights on because he's like, get this asshole. <laughs> right. And the cop comes out and he couldn't have been more polite about it. Um, I explained. And I'm trying to find the identification for the car because it's my mom's car. Mm. And I had no idea where she kept it. You'd think it'd be in the glove box, but I don't know. We found it eventually. And he, he, he gave me, he, he pulled a, a, a surreal moment on me. I handed him my license and he's looking at it. And he's looking at me with the flashlight. He's like, how do I know this is your license? And I'm taken aback and I'm like, because I look like the guy in the picture? Mm-hmm. Like, that's why there's pictures on there, right? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, but other people could look like the guy in the picture. <laughs> And I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, my twin brother, but he's right there. And he's like, oh, you've got a twin brother in the car. Um, so, but he was just messing with me. Uh, he understood what was going on. I get that a lot, too, with the ID, because this is my ID picture. 
damn. And no one, no one can recognize me without the beard. So I get that a lot. So right now, Justin is all clean shaven in his um, driver's license. More picture. like two days of five o'clock shadow. Yeah, but you you know you you look like someone who's basically clean shaven in the driver's license picture. Got a full mountain man beard. It's glorious. You know what? We never started the episode. We just started chatting. I think yeah. I should put all this into the episode because this was this was interesting shit. Yeah, well, let's let's do a soft entry now then. Okay, cool. Uh, welcome to the Basin Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Stephen Zuber, and I am Justin. Excellent. I'll leave my last name out of it for now. Yes, that's usually wise. Uh, we Most of our guests don't do the last name thing. Because his last name is Obama, and he doesn't want that kind of attention. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Steven, shut up. Sorry, Wait. Clinton. Oh, shoot, that's another one. Yeah, all right. Uh, what was the... Why were they trying to get you in trouble, those other cops that pulled you over? Or, like, oh. how could you tell? Um, one guy, I was signaling to get over to the right turn lane for blocks, and there was kind of room, but, you know, like how somebody's supposed to, like, see and let you have a comfortable amount of space mm -hmm. well they weren't and so i just you know like well I've, I've let you know my intention for a good half minute i'm coming over mm -hmm. and then his lights come on i didn't realize it was a cop ah, and so he comes out dude. and he's like are you on something it was like three in the afternoon and i'm like no and this was actually at a point when i was in high school i'd never had any drugs or alcohol mm -hmm. And I was like, no, I've never done any of that stuff ever. He's like, never. And I'm like, yeah, actually, never. <laughs> and the guy in my passenger seat's laughing. And he was like, you cut me off back there. And I was like, well, I was trying to get over. If I knew you were a cop, I would have missed my turn, you know? Sorry. Yeah. Um, but he then did the thing where, you know, he went back and, uh, you know, took half an hour to look up all my information or whatever yeah, and just, yeah, just waste yeah. my afternoon. Um, another time... And I don't even know this was illegal. It sounds illegal to me, but I'm sure it's I'm sure it's legal because you what? Your tail light? <laughs> no, I was at a stoplight and I had just got this car and I'm doing the right thing at the stoplight. It's you know the middle of the night. I'm driving somebody home after a party and he pulls me over and he's like, "Yeah, your car isn't registered." And I'm like, hmm. first of all, you're allowed just to check. You're sitting behind me in traffic. I didn't do anything. Yeah. Oh yeah, um, that's definitely legal. They do that. Oh really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh. They'll run your plates even before they've pulled you over. Absolutely. And it's illegal to do that, or legal? Legal. Legal. Why isn't that a search that I should have? No, to... no. If they if they're searching Fourth Amendment style, like what people typically think of as a search, right? If they have a legal ability to be there, what they find is not a search. Okay. So so even though they're looking. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, see, public seeing, information. seeing my license plate and traffic is one thing, but putting it through his police-only database to, to check on who it is for no reason, that just seemed weird. But anyway. Yeah, it, it's a, it's been a, a point of contention. There is case law on it, but no, it is legal for police to just run your plates like that, even if they don't pull you over. Well, I call shenanigans because he found a, an excuse for no reason to pull me over. My car was, in fact, registered, but it was literally, like, earlier that day. Hmm. And I was like, check another office? Like, I, you know... I've got the temp tags or whatever and everything. And um, eventually, I don't know why, but he said like some, some database in Denver had it, even though I registered it in Fort Collins because that's where I was living. Huh. Um, some stupid thing there. But then I last, I think the only other time I can remember being pulled over, I had the, the little light above my license plate was out because I forget to do a 15-point inspection on my car every time I get into it, right? Huh. Um, he was nice about it. Okay. He just let me know. And I was like, oh, thanks. I, I had no idea. Um, and he didn't give me a ticket. I don't know... Because yeah, how would you know? You're, I mean, presumably you're supposed to get out and do a 15-point inspection every time you get into your car, right? Seriously? Well, I mean, otherwise you want to have a light out. Not I mean, how it. else are you supposed to know that, like, your brake lights aren't are out? You know, how would you know that? But Yeah, you have a cop pull you over and say, hey, by the way, this is out. Please go get it fixed. Yeah, I mean, that's... Or know. a cop pull you over and give you a ticket for having a light out. Yeah, but it, it shouldn't happen, but, that, but I think that's legal, mm -hmm. right? You've broken the law. You're supposed to have 
indicating brake lights. Hmm. I'm not a lawyer, but it sounds like if, if you had a cop who wanted to be an asshole or make more tickets that week, you know? Well, yeah. listen, uh, I, I highly recommend you never do anything in your car that could get you in serious trouble because that is the easiest way for police to get their hands on you. When you're driving a vehicle, you're almost certainly breaking the law in one way or another. It's almost impossible. I've got a mask drive from my mirror. That's against the law. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it, there's so many traffic regulations, you know, and the amount of things that you could do incorrectly. Like when you turn, for example, when you turn right onto the street, you're supposed to turn in the lane that is farthest to the right. If you veer over into the middle lane instead, say, you could be pulled over for that. If you weave it all in between lines, you get pulled over for that. I mean, there's just so many ways for them to pull you over. And once they pull you over, they are close to being able to get inside your car. They can't right, right. quite search it yet, but they only need to find one thing. And I smelled it, something. It was probably drugs. Uh, right. And that that's all it really can take sometimes. Yeah. There was one more time where we got pulled over. This was great. I got into a lot of shenanigans as a kid. And... Oh, I wonder how much of this I should say. Um, is it past the it's probably past the, it's any be. statute of limitations. You're Which is probably usually good. 10 years, right? Uh, for minor crimes, it's going to be just like a couple. Okay. okay. Well, in any case, we uh, did some donuts in a school soccer field for fun. And in the soccer field? It so was you the, it ripped was the, up their turf. I felt really bad when we went back the next day and saw how wrecked it was. Oh, man. But So we, we did donuts. We, we, we ruined it. And we were shooting fireworks off the whole time out of the car. <laughs> oh, God. Um, and it's like a residential area and everything. We were, you know doing crazy stuff and so we get pulled over coming back up that street 20 minutes later and uh the cops thought it was supposed to be a black car because this one was dark dark green okay and he's like i can see your car's green but you know i just thought i'd you know you thought he'd check and like meanwhile because it's in colorado you're not supposed to have fireworks mm -hmm. uh, or anything that shoots mm -hmm. um and we were we had, forgotten we had a car full of that exactly um and so uh we're sitting there you know holding our feet perfectly still so we can shove all the fireworks under the seat like we are we the car was Loaded with with illegal paraphernalia, and uh, we he just basically sent us on our way. He thought that he had the wrong car. So, and then I don't know how he didn't notice because when we got home, the car smelled like a freshly mowed lawn. Like, <laughs> anyway. Well, that's hilarious. But I've contacted the police, and they're on their way right now. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason we have Justin here is because Justin is a certified defense lawyer. You are a Justin Esquire. That's right. Yeah, I'm Esquire in two different states, in fact, uh -huh. Colorado and Pennsylvania, although I'm not active in Pennsylvania. Right. So really, I'm just a lawyer in Colorado. It's slightly annoying that you had to get recertified here when you moved here. Pretty annoying, yeah, especially to take the bar exam a second time. That was not fun. You can usually, you can, if you're in like one area for five years, you can just get like brought in, like grandfathered in almost. But uh, if I was only a lawyer for nine months when i moved here mm -hmm. so i wasn't nearly enough time so i had to take the bar like i was just graduating law school all over again so you took it twice while in working twice in uh, i took it summer 2018 and then february 2020 right before the pandemic so twice in about a year and a half year and eight months that but sucks. i mean i yeah it sucked but hey it I, a lot of money too I, right to take it yeah it's the test itself was uh, about 700 each time Damn. and then the the most of the like high profile practice courses like themis and barbary are like i got it for 1400 i was lucky holy crap usually it's 2000 plus oh barbary easily will cost you three okay um but you know i mean it's a lot you're yeah, not wrong yeah. however i just will remind 
you a much like law school, for example, costs, which right. is about $60,000 a year. Relative to that, the bar is dirt cheap. But In theory, um, could you be entirely self-taught and then take the bar, or do you have to have a degree to take the bar? No, you have to have a degree from an institution that's, so that's uh, I accredited by the American Bar Association. Like, if, if you can pay the $2,000 and pass the bar, that should be enough proof that you know what you're doing, right? Yeah, I mean, in theory, but that's like... the point of the test. But the bar doesn't really test your skills as an attorney that well well then it's a shitty test just school i mean no yeah (laughs) but like that's the thing is that like i mean no one's going to argue for law school staying exactly how it is right in theory it should teach you how to be an attorney it does not it teaches you a couple of very basic skills you need to know like legal research and writing it teaches you things like how to read a case so when i need to know what i you know from from a particular case what I the important bits I can just skip right to them because I know where roughly it's going to be. Um, so it teaches you that stuff. But as far as like your day to day practice, it doesn't teach you hardly anything. I mean, you can you can seek out like the sorts of classes that will help you with that stuff. Your sort of um, clinics okay. where you're actually like practicing kind of where you're practicing under a, a licensed attorney and stuff. But if you don't seek those out, you could totally go through all law school and not get any legal education in, in really much of a sense that helps you practice as a lawyer. You're fucking nuts, man. But that's, that's school, right? I mean, it, yeah. law school, I'll give it this. It prepared me more for being a lawyer than undergrad prepared me for other jobs. It was, it was more, because it's narrowly focused. Every class is law related. Is law school one of those ones where you can't go into it until you have an undergrad in something else? Yeah, you have to have an undergraduate. God, degree. that's so mm-hmm. fucking stupid. You're just hearing shakedown after shakedown. <laughs> yeah. So then after all that, you take a test that you have to spend thousands of dollars taking and like, neither the school nor the test apparently say you, you're a good lawyer now right, <laughs> right. what was your undergrad in uh accounting okay yeah. hey accounting yeah. brothers never used it again yeah yeah i know i used it a little bit i had a job in like kind of finance and a little bit of it after school but um yeah i didn't accounting didn't really come into the but i you know i selected it when i was 17 i didn't know what i was doing and i was like i'm kind of i took an accounting class in high school yeah. and i was like i'm pretty good at this so i guess i'll go to school in that I guess. Mm-hmm. And then by the time I was in my third year, I realized I a, didn't want to do that. And B, I, that's when I had a class that had to do with law and I fell in love with it immediately. So I have taken yeah. exactly one college level accounting course. I, I mean, I took 10 and yeah. it was torture. Yeah. So I'm, I'm happy for you. Yeah. Cool. And you know, I made up, made up the other side of that deal by working in the industry for 15 years. So, right. <laughs> and you know, I, I still have the I don't know what you call it when you can't go higher because you don't have the paper, a paper ceiling. Like, yeah, I can't go higher than my current position, but that's okay because I don't give a fuck. That's so stupid. You know, it, it's, it's one of those things too. I don't know. I don't think that's going to happen much in my industry just because if it does, if it, if they try it, I'll just change jobs. But like, uh, my wife's dad worked for Anheuser-Busch doing something software related for 25 years. Mm-hmm. And at some point they made him go take night classes at Front Range Community College to get a piece of paper saying, you can now do this other thing. He's like, but I built the whole thing you guys are working with. Yes. <laughs> Haven't I demonstrated my value or whatever? And, but no, apparently, you know. It, Would you like me to leave? Right. Well, but the thing is, I think because big company, tenure, you know, not tenure, but seniority, you know, great health insurance and all that. So yeah. it was a good cushy job for that. But um, yeah, I would never stand for that shit. Like, oh, sorry, we need to go back to college. And I'm like, what, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Are you going to pay for my classes? You know? S- some places will subsidize education, which is kind of cool. But even um, still, it's a pain in the butt. Yeah. Even it takes a would, lot of time. I, and yep. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not going to. I mean. That's how many hours of my life every week? Yeah. My boss bought all of us because there's only four of us on the team. Um, he bought us all a Udemy course for Docker with this uh, 
technology thing that we're using. Is that but, one of those online? Yeah. Okay. But he, he was just like, oh, I found this really good Docker course. Um, let me send it to you guys. And he just, he bought us all, like, he just did that. Maybe he expensed the company. He probably did. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, well, maybe. It, it's, he's the kind, I think, I get the impression he's super rich. Is he the company? Uh, not this one, but he is, he, he, he has been the company at previous companies. Okay. He, he occasionally mentions like a line like, oh yeah, uh, like my first company I sold, we did this. And like one of the companies I had, we did this. And, um, he's never like gone on at length about it, but I think once you're in a high up enough position, like anything that you want at the end of the year, you can be like, oh yeah, that was for the company and move it over to yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, he's, he's the CTO. Uh, it's. I'm, I'm sure, and there, let's, I guess you're right. Let's be real. He is absolutely probably expensing everything he can just yeah. because why wouldn't he? Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, we have some officers in our company that every now and then we'd like get a credit card bill for $6,000 and we're like, all right, we'll process it, but you really, really should go through the normal channels when doing this, this high of a level of expense. That's wild. Yeah. Anyways, um, we are here because we wanted to... Uh, we have you here because we uh, saw your posts on the, it's the SSC, um, not Discord. The mod. Subreddit. Oh, the mod. Yeah, the mod. Which, yeah, was split off from SSC. And uh, on there you are the Eagles Last Stand, and you put together a whole bunch of really interesting posts about the Derek Chauvin case. Am I pronouncing his name right? Yeah. Okay, while that was going on. On the Monday Culture War, the weekly Culture War threads. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just like, I like how it had to be, because there, it's... I mean, it should just be a thing that you can, you know, don't, I, it just at a high level, I thought it was funny that it, we had to wait for Mondays for updates because that was the, the Mott's day where you could talk about something this culture war Right. Yeah. Even though he was just laying out the up, the legal updates. Yeah. 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 And uh, it wasn't really, I mean, I put it in there because that's where eyeballs tend to, you know, end up, but mm-hmm. like I didn't, and it is a culture war case, but if you read the posts and if you watch the any of the trial at all, it's pretty clear that culture war isn't really involved. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is that one of the things about the trial is what it is not. You know, the, all the popular discussion about this case has to do with race, and yet race never came up during the trial. Not once. I don't even think huh. the word was mentioned, and except maybe quickly in voir dire during uh, during the attorney's questioning of some of the perspective jurors it just doesn't come up because it's not it's not evidence right it, he has these three crimes that he is charged with here is the evidence that proves beyond a reasonable doubt or doesn't that he is guilty of these crimes and whether or not he had i mean it, it could have been relevant if for example he was charged with a crime requiring some some level of intent but that wasn't the case here he was he was charged with two different counts of murder but neither of the murder charges are the type of murder charges that one typically thinks of it's not first degree premeditated malice of forethought requiring the intent to cause a specific harm to a specific person so what his reason was for doing what he did was really just not that big of a part of the case and race especially just did not come up whatsoever okay i'm making a quick note that that is where we are going to start off when we come back to this because as always we start with the i guess we didn't really as always this time but as typically as typically yes we start with two less wrong posts that we briefly discuss briefly in quotes i guess it depends on your definition of briefly and yes we will talk about two less wrong posts first like we typically do and uh justin you have also read them right so you can yeah chime in whenever you want to do that for anyone who is not interested in this at all skip forward i'm assuming 20 minutes or so that's very optimistic of you i think these are usually 40 are they really i don't know we'll go through fast though okay 
No, we might not. Who knows? Don't lie to the people. Well, I mean, I think that these are these are two quick ones, and they're they're fairly easy to summarize. The logical fallacy of generalization from fictional evidence is one of my favorites because when phrased that way, it tells you the exact point of it. Yeah. And I I once in a while bring this up, and I phrase it exactly like this way. You know, if uh, someone is mentioning their uh, like their dislike of uh smart house things because apparently there was a movie in the 90s or early 2000s called smart house okay or smart home or whatever and obviously it Does turns it, like, on them, them? Yeah. I, I think it was a disney or like a, a younger population mo- movie okay. so at the very least it turns on and makes their lives annoying i forget what it does because i never saw the movie but they were like no i don't want all the you know the smart lights and uh the the electronic assistance that if i say its name it'll start talking to us yeah. um you know, I don't, I don't want any of that stuff because I, you know, I saw this movie Smart House and I'm like, you know, we should be careful about generalizing from fictional evidence, right? Because mm-hmm. when you say that, it's like, you know, you realize you're, you're making your case from something that someone just made up. Yes. Like, <laughs> it is, it couldn't be, couldn't be more facetious way to base, like, base any belief on. Mm-hmm. Like, oh no, we, we should really be careful not to, uh, to, I don't know, go out during a full moon because of werewolves or something, right? Yeah, like, yeah. it's exactly that level of, of, of reinforcement there. You need a separate argument for why this makes any sense. Yes. And yeah, that's, it's wonderful. He says people, some get it, some people get it and right away and laugh. And that is, yeah, that is the level we're talking on right now. But he also goes deeper into that about uh, why this is something to worry about, even if you do realize that it's fictional evidence and shouldn't be used in any sort of real evidence. So I'm going to go into a little bit more on that part, because that's the more interesting part, I think. Totally. Well, they're both interesting, but more applicable to... Uh, our audience said one's right. easy and doesn't need a, anything worth talking about and the other one is is deeper yes as he says there are subtler ways to go wrong uh, um i'm going to okay so uh the first of all he makes the point that requirements storytelling are not the same as requirements of forecasting obviously uh stories don't use probability distributions <laughs> and makes a really cool example about you know the hero walked into this room and looked re- left and then right or possibly right and then left and then was holding one of these various weapons and gives percentage possibilities for each one. And then his uh, loyal sidekick joined in afterwards. And some scholars say that it was this sidekick and he died soon after. But other scholars say that it was this sidekick and lasted through the rest of the adventure. And yeah, that, that's just not a very good story. Unless, it's, wor- story. unless it's worth the candle. <laughs> <laughs> but that is the sort of thing that you would say if you were actually trying to make a prediction, right? You give various probability distributions rather than just this is exactly what happens. Uh, but he says, you know, but that's not even the real problem. On problems with large answer spaces, the greatest difficulty is not verifying the correct answer, but simply locating it in answer space to begin with. If someone starts out by asking whether or not AIs are going to put us in capsules like in the Matrix, they're jumping to a 100-bit proposition without a corresponding 98 bits of evidence to locate it in the answer space as a possibility worthy of explicit consideration. Imagine for a second someone dedicating a great deal of their time towards preventing that specific outcome mm. it almost sounds insane right mm-hmm. you know if, if they're if they want to go timothy mcveigh style and blow up uh computer buildings i don't know exactly what he did but whatever if they want to go sarah connor and start blowing up computer science buildings let's generalize from that fictional evidence yeah um then sure you know then you're then you're solving a wider problem from whatever you think you're doing but if all you're trying to do is keep the matrix robots from putting you in pods to harvest your btus that seems like a really weirdly specific goal right yeah yeah, he points out that normally if you were uh, trying to locate something worthy of consideration, you'd do things like weighing what you know and don't know, what you can and can't predict, trying to avoid biases and widen confidence inver- intervals, pondering which questions are the important ones, trying to adjust for black swans, but jumping simply to matrix yes or no skips over all of those steps. 
matrix yes or no <laughs> yeah uh, I, I mean yes or no skips over all the steps unless you just answer no right i mean i guess I but, guess, but, 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 but jumping then, jumping to that yeah, to that binary question that yeah. fact that someone even yeah. brought that up yeah is there any sort of now that i'm thinking about it is there any sort of um similar thing in the law field privileging the hypothesis sort of thing well i will say that um when it comes to i mean this is kind of off topic but uh Part of the I like his his uh, example in in the post about having to figure like assigning probabilities to each and every uh, like individual thing that happens and and you know as when you're an attorney and you're especially when you're reading uh, like in discovery like a police report the police have written it down in a certain way right but you have to kind of read between the lines and try to find where they may have completely missed what they actually did. You know what I'm saying? So like, cause they wrote it in a way that's beneficial to them. So like, even though this doesn't really have anything to do directly with the post that did kind of hit me where it's like, Oh yeah, I have to find those probability distributions in a sense all the time. Cause they, you know, they'll say that they did this, but I mean, realistically most cops don't do that. And also if he did this instead, that would be really bad for him, but he wrote it the way that is really good for him. Well, mm-hmm. that's convenient. You know, what if what if he didn't do it that way? And so you have to try to dig through more evidence to find, you know, whether or not he's actually or she's actually being accurate in the report. Not really related to the post, but that's uh, that's something that that made me think of. Yeah, that's that's. You have to find the where the errors are could be. Do a lot of defense lawyers do that, or are you just like really good? No, you have to do it. I mean, that oh, yeah. is yeah. I mean, that's like that's you know, defending someone one-on-one. I mean, the cops are going to write what they did in a report and they're going to do it. I mean, they, I think they're mostly pretty honest, but they're going to either make mistakes or do things in a way that is beneficial to them. And that is subconsciously what they want to believe they did. Right. That is illegal. Where you forgot one line of the Miranda rights or something. Right. And so like, for example, uh, you know, when you're pulled over for a suspected DUI, you have to be read that you can get a blood test or a breath test. If they flub that line and only offer you one, Hmm. the results of that entire test, whatever you choose could be thrown out completely. And so that case goes away. Right. Also, is this a great idea to always hit record whenever police approach you for anything? I don't see why it wouldn't be. I mm. mean, you, you want to, I mean, most cops today have body cam when they're uh, engaging with a civilian for like any reason. But um, I mean, there's really no harm in having more recordings. I can only imagine what practicing must have been like before there was video of everything and you had to just go by the cop's word and you had nothing else. I mean, you could say that they're probably full of shit, but how do you know? Yeah. Nowadays we have cameras that sometimes will show you that they are full of shit or show you that they're at least somewhat wrong in a really relevant way, you know, or back up we... their case. Like at the very least, it's like, look, we can all, we've all seen the film. Yeah. Like I, 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 the idea of just having actual evidence as opposed to someone telling a convincing story. There was a literal stabbing in process. Yeah. yeah. There's a couple of quick things. One is uh, Mike Probiglia is a good stand-up comic. He doesn't really tell jokes as much as he tells like 70 minute stories. Mm-hmm. And it might've been his first Netflix special or his second. Uh, the, the, like the big thing he keeps coming back to is he was in a car accident where he got T-boned at an intersection and the cop who wrote the report said that car A came through the intersection and was struck from the side by car A and oh. he was car A who came through the intersection and car B struck him, but the cop put car A for both. Uh-huh. And he just went nuts arguing, you know, calling the cop over like every day for months, trying to get him on the phone. Right. He tried to take it to court. Right. And like they finally, it was an obvious typo. It was. Era. And the, what, what ended up happening was he got, finally got the cop on the phone and he's like, look, you, you said this. And he's like, just do the right thing and pay the guy. 
And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. You, you made a mistake. Me. And yeah. he's like, just, just, just do the right thing and pay it up. And so, of course, this drove Mike insane, and he's yeah. trying to figure this out. But apparently it was, like, ruining his life, and he's just told by his friends, like, dude, just drop it. Yes, you were right. But he uh, during the show, he brings the police report, and he blows it up on a big screen behind him so you can, yeah. he can show. Dude. And you, can, you can feel his passion oh, getting nuts about that, it. That uh, is, like, that is the best revenge. Become successful and, like, point this shit out. Yeah. Um, nice. I, so, I mean, yeah, I'm sure he made more than the cost of whatever he lost in that that case, you know, telling that story on Netflix, right? I suppose, but, but it's still infuriating. Oh, yeah. You can, you can tell he, he's, he's, he's past the period where he's obsessed about it. Mm-hmm. But during the show, you know, he, you can still tell he's getting impassioned about it. Yeah. Um, I was thinking of probabilities in court, though. You know, there's like, um, what do you call this? Uh, switch, flipping the denominator or something? There's a, there's a general word for it. So, a uh, guy's on trial for killing his wife. Um, the defendant, the defendant, the defense says almost no husbands kill their wives. You know, it's got to be one in a hundred thousand or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. And that is not the the number you're looking for. The number is given dead wife. Uh-huh. What are the odds that the husband did it? Right, which and, is much much higher. Right, and so th- that's that's the uh, th- that's where I can kind of see like actual numbers coming in. Um, and then of course there's actual numbers that you you know whatever the numbers are they're available, mm-hmm. and so. I could just imagine someone trying that switcheroo and being like, I don't, "Look, almost nobody does this," and it's like, "That's he's not almost nobody. Mm-hmm. He's the he's the person of interest for a reason." Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, I did while we were talking. I just thought of an example of generalizing from fictional evidence in the law, one that I've seen quite a few times. So back when I was a law clerk, that's when I've seen the vast majority of the trials I've seen because I was working for judges who would have trials you know, every other week. So I've seen like 30 or so trials that happened here in Arapahoe County. Um, and I, the beauty of that job is I was able to talk to the jurors mm. before, during, and after trial. Before and during, you kind of stay mum because there's certain things that if you say can cause real problems. But afterwards, there's no rules. You can ask them anything you want about what made them come to their decision. And one thing that often they would say, especially after an acquittal, is that there was the, the evidence they expected to be there which I assume I, I I'm guessing is based, based on, on CSI. CSI. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted more DNA. You know, they wanted something that more directly ties them. Now, I think it has kind of a fortuitous outcome. I mean, if if we're going to be you know beyond a reasonable doubt, it's a pretty high standard. If you're close, I, I think that you know the tie should go to the runner, and they probably shouldn't be convicted. But at the same time, there's a lot of people who expect that that level of evidence should be there, and then the state just doesn't have the resources for that level of evidence to be in every single you know, domestic violence case. Yeah. And so it's just not there. And, and the guy ends up walking because of it. I have heard, um, yeah, prosecuting attorneys really hate CSI because it makes everyone expect these unreasonable standards, which may not even exist in real life. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's subtle. I don't think most people actually expect that, but I think when they're presented with the case, they finally realize, Oh, that's, that's all they have is the testimony of a police officer, maybe one video, couple of things i was expecting something more and and i think that probably comes from seeing in in fictional situations a very thorough case the the cases that you see on tv would be like the Derek chauvin trial it would be the most high profile type stuff that's when all the effort is put in that's when you spend millions of dollars on forensics right yeah 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 when it's just a dude beating up his wife it's like I got 10 more of these to get to tonight (laughs) i don't have a million dollars for each one right exactly man that sucks Anyways, yeah, happy uh, news. Yes, uh, the thing I found super interesting about this is uh, this thing that I pulled out. Uh, Eliezer says, in the ancestral environment, there were no moving pictures. What you saw with your own eyes was true. 
It will be hard enough to undo the damage by deliberate concentration. Why invite the vampire into your house? In chess or go, every wasted move is a loss. In rationality, any non-evidential influence is, on average, entropic. <laughs> and, like, I really like that because it feels true to me. Feel it, I guess it's truthy where it, the when you see something and, God, especially, like, on TV, you see the close-ups of people crying and you get all emotionally invested in it. Like... It feels like you're seeing something that actually happened, which is why we care that, like, no, you can't do that to Scarlet Witch. <laughs> She's a good person. Stop fucking her. But um, I-, I was wondering, like, is this a general argument against fiction? I will just raise the point that Inyash made a Marvel reference well before it even crossed my mind to do so. <laughs> I think I think my, my obsession is contagious. Mm. Um, the you, you mentioned the fact, yeah, that he wrote HPMOR. So. Yeah, well, that was going to be my, my next follow-up to that oh i shouldn't have jumped the gun sorry yeah but um, is it is it a case against fiction in general that fiction since it literally is made up and, and you know it's it's lies and uh it is altering what you see in the world or it is giving you something to see in the world that you're going to somehow on some emotion level internalize so is it just is it just fucking up your picture of the reality to consume fiction i think that's a pretty weak rebuttal against it you know what i mean like people enjoy fiction so much yeah the idea that it's slightly warping your view of reality it's probably some truth to that but like compared to the the beauty that you see in fiction you know how how much joy you get how you know i I would say that fictional works are one of the things that make life worth living yeah you know and so like the fact that it's warping your view of reality and unless you give me a really clear-cut very poisonous example the fact that it's, a, it, it, I guess, suppose it is literally a case against fiction to some extent, but it's just not very convincing, in my opinion. Okay. I think you're supposed to get lessons and wisdom and fun from fiction, not facts, mm-hmm. right? And so that said, lessons can be misapplied to reality or properly applied to reality, right? Yeah. 1984 was a fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the author clearly intended for some aspects of it to be, hey, be mindful of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, if... Uh, Terminator is a great example, right? Terminator is a great fun story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lesson you shouldn't take from it is that robots will uh, look like humans yeah, and track that, you down. They, they will like that. That if you build an, an artificial intelligence, it will make robots with two legs and two arms and glowing red eyes and a gun. Yeah. Um, that's not the lesson you should take from it. Um, maybe it could be a general lesson about technological hubris or something, right? Mm-hmm. Or more than that, it's just fucking fun watching mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger be a Terminator, right? The one of the interesting points parts of terminator is that like the lesson you learn early on is the vast majority of humankind is wiped out when the ai tricks the u.s and the soviet union into exchanging nuclear weapons but like all you actually see in the movie is one robot tracking one other person (laughs) because that's the really exciting part but yeah the 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 way the the ai actually wiped out humanity was you know hacking people's beliefs and uh and threat responses I just watched last night the episode of Rick and Morty in season four that was like three minutes of the episode was just snakes hissing. It was like the the snake, I forget what episode it was, I think season four, episode five. Yeah. Um, they they get time travel shenanigans, the snakes do. And so like there's snake Hitler and there's snake uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln. And when one guy goes back in time to kill snake Hitler, this other teleporting snake shows up right behind him from time, shoots him. Then another one teleports in, shoots him. And then from like, that side of the building, you start seeing snake piles body up. That's what you would have expected to happen in Terminator if they had a time machine, right? right. You drop a bunch of them. And they mm-hmm. do something kind of like that in the one... Uh, I don't know. They, they, they went off the rails Branches with these. on the Tree of Time? Well, that one for sure. Oh, okay. That's an Alexander Wales short story. Everyone yeah. should check out. But 
in one of the Terminator movies, they do they actually play with the idea that time did something. Right. Um, there was the one. Might have been... In the first Terminator, the thing was they built the time machine. The AI built the time machine just as the humans were getting in, and so it only had time to send out one Terminator before the humans smashed it. So and that... then and then threw back their own person. Well, b- yeah, before the humans, I guess, grabbed it. Yeah, but you know, and then as the movies went on, they're just like, oh, actually, I had a time to throw back two. No, no, there was time to throw back three machines. And, yeah, I mean, if depending on how hard it is to change the time on these things, I would have set the robot to go back 30 minutes and guard the door so that I could bring in more robots to do the actual important <laughs> mission, right? Right, maybe, so, yeah. All right, um, but, you know, it, it is what it is. It, it wouldn't have been a fun story if it was just the yeah. snake episode of, of Rick and Morty. Right, yeah. <laughs> Might have been a fun episode if it was Branches of the Tree of Time, but, um, yeah. Mark, see, you told you this takes longer than, tw- than 20 minutes. All right, fine. I but, had a great time with it, though. But, yeah, so, so I was wondering, what can we extrapolate from the fact that the person who said this thing implying that all fiction is a deliberate skewing of your uh of your vision of reality is also the person who wrote harry potter and the methods of rationality in rationality any any non-evidential influence is on average entropic mm-hmm. um i don't know if like when when i draw lessons from methods of rationality i'm not thinking and here's how i will get good at quidditch mm-hmm. right um i'm thinking uh I, I'm, I'm trying to to generalize the lessons of the characters like their actions, their 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 failures, their successes, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, in a way that's not specific on the evidence of the world in particular, but more generalizable. Plus, like when Harry monologues and just talks about science, like he's citing real world papers, yeah. right? Um, I guess if I am going to take the other side of that argument, though, if I'm going to generalize, like if I'm going to try to try and internalize wisdom from the lessons of the characters or something, uh, I'm doing that in a fictional setting from a fictional universe. You know, real world lessons probably are way different than how to, you know, it, if someone's plotting to ruin my life, it probably won't look like Lucius Malfoy doing it, right? Right. It'll probably look way different. Mm-hmm. So maybe I shouldn't generalize too much from that kind of lesson. My thought upon upon contemplating this was that Eliezer knows exactly what he's doing and he's trying to introduce fictional evidence into the minds of everyone who reads this in order to steer the future in a way that is what he considers more, um, less likely to kill all of humanity. And... I don't know. That seems almost dark artsy, but also like I like it. And also I love HPMOR. So, you know, I- I'm not about to complain. But yeah, that's that's an interesting thing to think. And the more I thought about it, like all of us don't have perfect views of reality anyway, right? We could use some adjusting in some way. So if you consume a piece of fiction that uses fictional evidence to adjust your priors more towards the way the world really is, that's net helpful. It's just really hard to, you know, target stories to people where it would help them as opposed to hurt them necessarily. Yeah, this reminds me of a, you mentioned perfect views of reality. There's a Saturday morning breakfast cereal comic. Um, Let's see, it would have been, shoot, I can't find it right away. Oh, there it is. QASP. Um, Quality as shitty, or qualia are shitty perception. (laughs) And so, like the perfect view of reality. He's imagining that if we had like a way to get perfect quantum level information about reality, we could call it Excalibur, Qualiaber. It's easier to read than it is to say. Um, it didn't even think of that. Okay. Like, all right, yeah, if we could get perfect information on the, on the thing, then there'd be no disagreement, right? Mm-hmm. What's it like to be a bat? Well, that's a stupid question because bats have shitty perception. It's, they, they had, if they had perfect quality percep- perception, then this wouldn't be a problem. Hmm. Um, I kind of forgot the rest of my point because I was thinking of the comics. So, yeah. yep. I, I like 
that use of fiction. And like I said, I just like fiction in general. Yeah, I don't think the author takes a hard stance against fiction or he wouldn't have spent five years writing Harry Potter fan fiction. And reading tons of fiction, so yeah. yeah. Um, I think I think the key, like I said, is just not to run from, I saw this in a movie, therefore I should be concerned about it happening in real life, depending on what the movie, you know, on how applicable the movie is. And that's maybe a harder lesson to get, right? You know? Yeah, I mean, in, in just just the whole idea of be cautious of ha- of exposing yourself to fictional evidence, I think, is an interesting idea to ponder. And I'm not sure how to incorporate it into my life, considering how much I love fiction. I don't know what it would mean, you know, like, if you're watching a slasher fic with a home invasion, you might learn some general lessons about, like, what not to do because it gets every family in every movie like that killed, mm. right? That said, you're assuming that the people are going to break into your house are going to be like the people in the movie, right? right? Uh, really, the solution is go upstairs, grab your shotgun, and just sit with your back facing the door. Um, or, excuse me, sit with your back against the wall and face the door. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that might happen in a horror movie. I don't know. It. I think just go forth, have fun, and don't grab a specific conclusion from fiction and say we should be, we should be worried about exactly this unless you can make a good independent case why, yeah. right? Um, you know, again, if you're, if you're worried about 1984 state-like government stuff, mm-hmm. um, you can point to, well, look, you know, you, what, you, what you probably shouldn't do is say, well, look, these three things happened and then it became like, you know, this dystopia from 1984. Mm-hmm. But you can say, these people weren't very happy. The author was a pretty savvy guy. People aren't happy now and we're, we're kind of checking these boxes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it, it seems more applicable to human psychology. It's mm-hmm. kind of like generalizing from actual history. That's that's what he goes on to say in the rest of the post, that uh, people don't actually treat this like as a prophecy or as real evidence, but emotionally it feels like, you know, this is something that happened in the past or this happened over in a different country, so how are we going to address it? <laughs> he says that uh, journalists don't believe the future will contain Borg. They don't believe Star Trek is a prophecy. But when someone talks about brain-computer infra interfaces they think will the future contain borg not how do i know computer assisted telepathy makes people less nice which the second question is you know the real question but but you go with the emotional affect of like oh hey what if there's borg in the future that's what happened when this happened in star trek so what are borg oh my god wow yeah, these, you're right uh, I, it, this is the your bi-monthly reminder that i haven't seen star trek wow we need a not everything is a star trek episode <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but they're like a collective intelligence mind and there's like these individual mindless drones who just like steal technology and have no care for human like lives so whatever they destroy they just it's like it, it doesn't matter to them at, at all they're like a hive mind species and yeah the individuals yeah they're drones they don't matter kind of like a less coordinated uh buggers from ender's game yes okay i could follow that yeah so you don't want that but yeah. you're right. So I think that, that you can watch that and say this might be, a, a, you know, an actual downside of doing human mind interface telepathy or something, right? But, like, but the better question but, is... But, but you focus on the actual thing, not Borgs. Yeah. Or Borg, if it's not plural. It doesn't look like it's plural. Right. All right. Okay. Yeah. So that was, that was that post. It was a very interesting one. And the next one is another classic of the sequences. Hold off on proposing solutions. And this, uh, anyone who's read HPMOR will be familiar with this one. Uh, but the gist of it is that when a group faces a problem, the natural tendency of its members is to propose possible solutions as they begin to discuss the problem. And consequently, the group interaction focuses on the merits and problems of those proposed solutions. Uh, when a researcher enacted an edict to enhance group problem solving, the edict was, do not propose solutions until the problem has been discussed as thoroughly as possible without suggesting any. And this did very well. I do, I do try to keep this in mind, and this one's not that hard to do especially when working in groups. Mm-hmm. Um, 
if you're trying to figure something out or work on a solution to a problem, um, it especially if you remember to bring it up early, depending on if you're dealing with people who have heard the phrase or not, um, it is very helpful to say, hold on, before we start trying to answer the question, let's discuss the problem a little more. And I find that very helpful to do with work things, with non-work things, with whatever. But anyone who's read, like you said, Method of Rationality, particularly chapter 25, chap named, you guessed it, Hold Off on Proposing Solutions, is already familiar with the lesson of this one. I, I hate to put you on the spot again, but I don't really hate that because that's why I brought you here. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Is Is there... I'm assuming that in trials, there's a lot of not proposing solutions and trying to map out the problem space first, but maybe I'm wrong about this. Well, I mean, you should, by the time you're at trial, all of the issues should have been meted out by then. I'm not sure what you mean. You Usually, I mean, trials, they have their fair share of things that come up that fuck things up. But okay. for the most part, whatever the main issues are, are already handled before trial. Oh, right? You okay. should always, already so have that way to, out of the way by then. So you're just trying to convince the jury of yeah you have your story and i have mine and we're going to tell our stories and see whether or not the jury thinks you're guilty of what they're char charged with beyond a reasonable doubt but like as far as like an evidentiary issue like whether something should be allowed to come in that's already handled okay. by this time um so yeah, i guess it's all the pre-trial work where you're right okay yeah there's usually those several stages before a trial starts where you would you would handle those issues ahead of time and mostly because if you handle them during trial what that actually looks like is the jury just sitting around doing nothing for long periods of time or being told to just sit in their jury room, which is this tight little room that no one wants to be in for more than five minutes and just having them sit in there for two hours. And then, you know, you have to check in on them every so often and be like, sorry, guys, it's going to be another 30 minutes. And they're like, uh-huh, sure. You know what I mean? It just annoys people, yeah. slows everything down. So, yeah, you always get that stuff done well ahead of time. How, how much pretrial work is there for each per trial? I well, guess it depends on the case. Yeah, it depends on the case. I mean, for there's some cases where it's just pretty clear that there's going to be a plea agreement pretty early on, and so you're just doing some very basic, like, you'll review the discovery, you'll you know reach out to the prosecution, talk to them a little bit, you'll you know, ask uh, for your client to provide some mitigation, you know, like, you know, let's make them see you as more than just the crime that you're charged with um, so that you get a better deal. Uh, but then there's some stuff where, okay, well, there was this, uh, there's this huge, like, maybe, maybe one event that occurred, there was, like, I'm thinking of one in particular client I had who, there was several witnesses to the crime. They gave some statements on the scene to the police officers, but it was very bare bones. So, and this was a, tr a case we thought might go to trial. So we actually hired a private investigator to go out and, and interview those witnesses further. And you want to get those also like videotaped. Right. So you can also maybe have them transcribed. If you ever call them and they go on the stand and, and they're going off of, they're going off track from what they said, you can impeach them with that. You can say, well, isn't it true that on this date you had an interview with so-and-so? And isn't it true that, you know, you said this on that date, you know? And so, so impeaching is like the technical term for dunking on someone? Yeah, basically. Yeah. It's, okay. it's uh, impeachment. <laughs> impeachment is the, is legally making someone look like a, like a liar. Okay. That's what impeachment evidence basically is. It's trying to make you look like a bad witness. Ain't you full of shit. Yeah. Um, oh. it, it was, it's what I've learned because Justin, I've had several talks on like how law works and it is so disappointingly even like more convoluted than I would have guessed. <laughs> so like the, like what you'd like to imagine and ideally you would start with not even really a defense and prosecution. You would start with like a, an objective, like 
what happened here, mm-hmm. right? And then what? Then the cynic might think, oh, no, what you've got is the defense who starts with the default assumption, they didn't do it, let's try and prove it. And the prosecution who says, they did it, let's prove it. Mm-hmm. It's not even like that, no. right? It's so much more, con- there's so many more twists and turns in there where it's like, the defense is like, oh, he totally did it, but did he do the exact charge that they brought to bear? Wow. No, can we mitigate that? You know, it, like, it's it's just makes me glad I uh, will probably never end up in a courtroom because I don't break that many laws. Um, yeah, please don't. Yeah, it sounds like a nightmare. I don't want to represent your ass. I, I would. I would have. <laughs> would it, wouldn't it be un- unethical for you to represent him? No. Oh no. Oh okay. I just. I. I, I don't think I'd have the patience for it. No. I'd be you like, just can, go on a murder spree in the middle of the courtroom. Or I'd be like, look, can I just? I'll say whatever you want. Can I just? How, how long? Do, how long do I serve in jail to get out of out of, out of this courtroom? Yeah. Five years. Fine. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm kidding. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I'm definitely not being your attorney. <laughs> if you're gonna say something like that. You you do you are on record uh, as a uh, pre-caving to torture. So that's right. Yeah. yeah, my just if anyone needs a reminder, if you're going to torture me, I will just bet I'll I'll break right away. You don't even have to start breaking my fingers. Yeah, but that just makes it really easy for someone to say, "Hey, I'm going to torture you if you don't give me five bucks." By all means, I mean it has to be a plausible threat of torture. Okay. Yeah. They actually got to be ha- holding a hammer and. Yeah, if someone asked me for five, if someone asked me for five bucks and they had a hammer, um, uh, yeah, I'd I would, probably say yes uh, too. I, I would, like, here's ten. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, here's a tip. One per finger. <laughs> cool. So he, in the post, he gives an example pr- uh, problem with uh, employees rotating around to to uh, not get bored in their jobs, but that reduces efficiency. Uh, and then the some groups were given the edict of don't propose any solutions until you've discussed the problem as much detail as possible. Uh, and some aren't. And the response or results here was that those who were not given the edict immediately, those not given the edict immediately begin uh, like start, they, they hear the problem and then start with solutions as their first like vocalizations on the subject and then argue about the solutions. Yes. If they're told, hold off on proposing solutions, they discuss the problem more. Yeah. And then they actually arrive at the what in this situation turns out to be the ideal solution of what rotating the senior member around or something rotating the top two and letting yeah. the yeah, worst one stay. But, uh, you those... know, what's fun is I remember hearing this example in school. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. But it's been so long. I can't remember. It was, must've been brought up in this context, but yeah. I, it makes me think how many things I've read from the sequences that I remember in school. I must've had a pretty good psych education. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you did go into the psych college course. So. I guess what's funny is like, in high school, Maybe I took primed you in high school. I took I took psychology in high school, and then I took AP psychology in high school, which is what like. 90 minutes a day, three days a week or something. Okay. Or maybe maybe an hour a day, five days a week, whatever the schedule was. Mm-hmm. Point is, it was like about the amount of contact hours you get for half of an undergraduate degree. Because okay. you're there for 70 minutes twice a week or some bullshit for a two-credit class or three-credit I forget what the numbers are, but it's the amount of contact I got in high school was on par with what I got in college when it came to the actual subjects I wanted to take. Nice. Um, yeah, it, it was uh, pointed out that those that were given the edict immediately begin to argue about the importance of productivity versus worker autonomy and avoidance of boredom. But those who are told not to, to discuss solutions at all were much more uh, likely to arrive at the solution of just rotating the two more capable workers. I wonder if this replicates. I'm assuming it does because this doesn't ding at all on my bullshit ometer. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, that said, you know, this would be easy enough for more people to go back and test. So. Uh, if it did hit that replication crisis business, someone by now could have done it again or under various guises with different questions. There is the claim made that when groups are faced with very tough problems, that's when group members are most apt to propose solutions immediately, which like was kind of shocking to me. Is that the case? I don't know where he got that. Um, it 
what what he points out then is like if the problem is how do we keep humanity from being extinct in 500 years people have an answer like that mm. right solve global warming or you know build Kill agi yeah build agi don't build robots you know whatever it is somebody's got an answer for that right okay. when in fact the problem is really hard yeah. um i and it and people if you have an answer to that ready and you haven't spent a long time thinking about it you should probably reconsider that answer mm. right yeah he goes on to say that the effectiveness of our decisions is determined only by whatever evidence and processing we did in first arriving at our decisions. After you write the bottom line, it is too late to write more reasons above. And this is a great time to plug the uh, previous uh, Less Wrong Post. It's called The Bottom Line, right? Was the name of it? Yeah, which made this point in more, far more detail. If you make your decision very early on, it will, in fact, be based on very little thought. Yeah. And since we change our minds less often than we think, which again, note back to that less wrong post, uh, once you can guess what your answer will be, you have probably already decided. And if you can guess your answer half a second after hearing the question, then you have about half a second in which to be intelligent, <laughs> which is not great. Did you want to jump in with anything? I think I'm good. Okay. Just making sure because didn't want to like leave you out. I want to grab the last bullet point because I've got a good example of this. Okay. Um, traditional rationality emphasizes falsification, the ability to relinquish an initial opinion when confronted by clear evidence against it. And I like this just meta note. He, he talks about traditional rationality as basically like Popperian science, mm -hmm. um, which I think has tons of value, but he, he brings it down because it's, it's a great bar and it's a lot, it's very valuable, but he's like, we can do better if we try harder. Yeah. That's the whole point of modern rationality as I guess as you'd call it. Yeah. Um, once an idea gets into your head, it'll probably require way too much evidence to get it out again. Worse, we don't always have the luxury of overwhelming evidence. Um, I suspect that a more powerful and more difficult method is to hold off on thinking of an answer, to suspend, draw out that tiny moment when we can't yet guess what our answer will be, thus giving our intelligence a longer time in which to act. Even half a minute would be an improvement over half a second. Right. Um, that makes me think of Darwin's On the Origin of Species, or just evolution altogether. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a very unintuitive and confusing conclusion to come to. So it's unlikely that he, he started with the idea, you know what, I bet we're literally cousins with bananas, mm -hmm. and then went out to go prove that, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's the kind of thing when you're, and maybe I just, you know, my, my I, I got the, the five-minute overview in school, I'm sure, but my, my real introduction to it that I, I'm sure most of my references go to in my brain without knowing it is Richard Dawkins' um, uh, The Greatest Show on Earth. And he spends like the first five chapters just daisy chain walking you to the basics of evolution. He does not start nice. from the begin, you know, from the, the 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 conclusion and give you all the evidence for it. Mm -hmm. He walks you from wherever your starting point is. Uh, you you get to fully understand it by halfway through the book or most of the way through the book anyway. Um, and it and it's when it when it's presented that way in the very incremental step, you can sit in that moment of uncertainty for a long time. And I imagine that's how it was initially discovered, right? Mm -hmm. I think most confusing things that, like many, I think most big problems are probably solved that way, where there was a long period of people not really know what's going on. They just go out and measure stuff. Mm -hmm. And like, then they're thinking, okay, well, hold on. If this flower is so deep and I'm only seeing these kinds of butterflies or these kinds of birds, like there's gotta be a bird with a beak d deep enough to get into that flower, right? Like, because that's, that's all the rest of these getting pollinated. You're just, you're out there seeing these things and trying to solve the, the, the ex, you know, to get an explanation for it. Um, the, the eventual conclusion is again, like that's, that's my favorite fact, you know, like it's, it's fun and cosmological to think about that. Your, you know, your body is made of stardust. Like that's awesome. Mm -hmm. But to me, my, my, my one sentence zinger for like mind blowing this is like, we are literally cousins with bananas. <laughs> like that it's, that is so 
uh i don't you know what i mean it's yeah. just it's fun it, it reminds me you, did you see that terrible alien prequel prometheus yes yeah, i did <laughs> it was so bad but at the very beginning like this very humanoid looking dude just like a really tall bald dude i think they're like 10 feet tall or something comes to earth puts some black goo in uh water and eventually that is like what helps make the humans right that if was, you say so, I forgot the movie. Made yeah, no I haven't sense seen to it me. since it came out. So, but yeah, that was that was the thing. That was like this will uh, help seed the intelligence into this planet, and this like this was done as life is first evolving on Earth, maybe even before that. Like we see barren rocks at the beginning of the movie, and it was pointed out that like after the millions of years have passed, where we get from that little black goo to humans, like we're more closely related to strawberries than we are to the aliens that first seeded the planet and yet somehow we look exactly <laughs> like them except a few feet shorter right yeah it's it seems to strain credulity that um it, it's basically just people not knowing how evolution works oh yeah yeah i mean the my favorite example of that is x-men yes you know yes. It, it opens up with, with with sir patrick stewart talking about you know evolution once you know one small genetic muta- mutation it's and like suddenly you can throw lightning bolts right or teleport or <laughs> yeah, yeah. control minds or move metal uh yeah you know uh this my this gene flipped and now suddenly i can move metal with my mind um mm. yeah i mean that's it's all fun and good though uh i do think this ties a bit into the um, fictional evidence post though because when he says the ability to relinquish an initial opinion when confronted by clear evidence against it is what traditional reality is based on traditional rationality uh but once you have an idea in your head it'll probably require way too much evidence to get it out again like seems sort of like a argument for not getting um unreality founded evidences into your head yeah i mean depending on you know how, how wedded am i to any belief i got from watching a movie um I'm trying to think of any movies I've seen recently that weren't, you know, uh, I, I just saw a movie like in the last couple of days. What did I watch? Oh, I watched a movie last night. Uh, it was a Polish or a, not Polish. It was a Danish movie with Mads Mikkelsen. Mm. It, was it like could a, have been better if it was a Polish movie. The reason I thought it was Polish because I watched a trailer for a Polish Netflix series. Mm. Uh, I think it's, I forget, it might be like the, the word orgasm came up a lot in the trailer. Okay. Uh, these, these high school or college girls make an orgasm app or something. And I was like, this isn't Polish. Inyash could watch it and understand it. Um, <laughs> It'd be part, hard. My Polish is bad. There's subtitles. You could relearn Polish watching Perfect. this. Yeah. And I'm like, this might be good, but I'm not going to pilot a show, you know, that I have to watch it read subtitles. Anyway, this, this, uh, this Danish movie was subtitled and it was like an action comedy because the, the, the humor there was very different. Point is, I saw a movie last night and I'm not, I'm not taking any lessons from that movie. Okay. None whatsoever. Yeah. Um, you know, the, there, there's, there's nothing, it was, it was And a, yet now you hate Danish people just a little bit more than yesterday. What does that mean with, with people not liking Danish people? Oh, I don't know. Is that a thing? Like, it seems to be a joke. Um, I, I was, I mean, I wasn't sure whether I should go with love or hate, uh, Danish people more. And I was like, eh, hate's more, um, you know, incendiary. I'll go with that one. There was a joke on a TV show called Better Off Ted, where she played the sister on Arrested Development. I forget her name. Um. She played like this this CEO Portia something. Yeah, Portia something. Okay. Anyway, um, and I forget what it was. Oh, and there was also like a like a, a picture I saw on Reddit of like someone's lawn sign. It's like you know we love uh you know we love um Muslims, Jews, Christians, various nationalities, various races, except Danes. Fuck Danes. <laughs> and like it was clearly a joke. Right. But then uh um veronica on better off ted makes a similar joke hmm. and he's like is that why you hate danish people i don't hate danish people i love them that's why i hold them to a higher standard <laughs> <laughs> nice so there must be some 
background meme to this. I'll have to look mm. into it. Why do people hate the Danes? I know that uh, the U.S. and um, what the Netherlands, I believe, is where the Danish are located, uh, have a special uh, friendship treaty that makes it much easier for uh, Americans to go and become Danish residents permanently. Cool. So, yeah, I guess I guess we hate them so much that we made a special friendship treaty with them just to keep them in check, keep your friends closer. They make delicious or no, pastries. Your enemies closer. Called Danish. Yeah, 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 that's true. I went to Whole Foods last night to buy some. We've gotten off topic as we always do. We should uh, get back onto the I topic of it. murder. All right. <laughs> well, before that, we've, we've got a quick, uh, speaking of murder, muggings. For oh, next yes. time, we've got Pascal's mugging, tiny probabilities of vast utilities, mm-hmm. and illusion of transparency, why no one understands you. Again, two classics from the less wrong genre. Speaking of Pascal's mugging, mm-hmm. I was Pascal's mugged by myself to buy 50 bucks worth of Dogecoin in January. Okay. And it worked. Nice. <laughs> like, so I, I, oh, I brought this up on the live episode. What I ended up doing is I sold off, uh, I don't know how many coins it turned out to be, but 500 bucks worth. Is that so, how much you put in originally? I put in 50 originally, and then oh. I put in like 100 bucks or 200 or something at some point. So I think I've made 2x my investment. So nice. now, no and matter what happens, Dogecoin. yeah, I've got 6,000 left. Nice. So cool. in the event that they ever become worth $10,000, I'm going to go, uh, I don't know, buy a yacht and set it on fire to see what color it turns, right? Cool. Um, That's, that sounds like a terrible idea, but, you yeah. know, it's your money. Yeah, my money. I'll do whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. I will, I, will, I will light cigars with $100 bills. That just sounds gross. You know what I mean, though. I, I do know what you mean. But on the on the chance they ever turned into 10 bucks, I made a nice, pretty chunk of change. And I'm not going to, like, obsess about it now. Because I was just worried, like, you know, Isn't what if I make some money? for, like, burning your money in a terrible way, just hookers and blow? Because at least then you get hookers and blow out of it, right? I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I guess if I want to be as cheap as po- or like as as gauche as possible, I'd get like a gold plated toilet seat or something. But mm. at least then you get a gold plated toilet seat out of it. Yeah. Anyways, we are here to talk about murder. Well, <laughs> it turns out it's murder. Yes. Yeah. Legally, it is. Yeah. Legally, we can say now that it was the murder of of George Floyd. I suppose that is that is true. Uh, I would caution just because it's not murder, like I said before, in the traditional sense, but it is still a form of murder. Um, and that is, I think, where we wanted to kick off anyway, because that's where you had left. That's what you were talking about when we veered course away. So um, what is the, the distinctions about the murders? Here? So, well, you typically when you think of murder, you think of premeditation and intent to cause harm, you know, that someone has done something wrong or whatever, and you intentionally harm them, mm-hmm. right? That's not really what happened here, or at least even if you say that that is what happened, that's not what uh, Derek Chauvin of. was charged with or found guilty of. He's found guilty of two different types of murder. The first, the the legal terms are second-degree unintentional murder and third-degree murder, but those are a little confusing. The better way to think of them is uh, felony murder was the first one, which is the commission of an inherently dangerous felony that results in a death. Um, usually inherently dangerous felonies are things like burglaries, arsons, rapes, robberies, kidnappings. If you do something like that and someone ends up dead, you've committed a felony and someone died, that is considered murder, even though it's not murder in the traditional sense like you would think of. It could be, but like, because you could imagine someone committing a rape and then killing someone afterwards basically on purpose. But even if they accidentally die, that is still murder. I heard of at least one case where someone was robbing a bank, shot a gun into the air, and uh, someone with a weak heart like had a heart attack, and then they were convicted of felony murder for that. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely possible. It like, depends on the jurisdiction. They some have it a little defined differently, but uh, that's yeah, absolutely possible. It seems like uh, you know, 
again, I'm glad we're disambiguating the word murder because it's pretty loaded. Again, when I picture murder, I picture me, whatever, going to a store, buying a gun, loading it with bullets and going to someone's house and shooting them in the face, right? If I'm in a bar scrap, and of course, I'm describing things I never do, <laughs> um, and whatever, I get in a, a good swing or the guy has, uh, you know, slips on a spilled beer or something and cracks his head on the ground. While you're fighting him. While, I, while I'm fighting him, I've murdered him, basically. Or a... a, a uh, it's prosecution very possible. could make a case that I've murdered him, right? right? Yes, because he he certainly wouldn't have died if we weren't in a fist fight. Um, so this that's that's more of the kind of crime that uh, Chauvin was charged with. Yeah, it was. So the predicate felony, meaning the felony that he was committing, that when the death occurred, it became felony murder. Was uh, interestingly, it was assault. And the reason I say that's interesting is that I I'm not I, I know it's the vast majority. It may even be all except Minnesota where this crime happened. Um, that defines felony murder in such a way that that would not be possible. He may have been convicted in the only state where that type of felony murder is possible. But isn't it entirely possible to accidentally murder someone while you're assaulting them? Right, but I mean that could still be like another form of. Oh, that would be like manslaughter. It would be or like maybe a second degree intentional murder, where it's like it's not where you're intending to cause harm. They end up dying, so you're still guilty of murder, but it's not like premeditation. You weren't intending to kill them, okay. right? So there's, there's different layers. The reason it was second-degree unintentional is, like I said, this this doesn't require any intent to cause harm specifically to them. Um, but for it to be felony murder, you have to have committed a felony. Usually the felony has to be the type of felony that murder does not itself imply. Um, murder does not imply a rape. Murder does not imply a robbery. If you've murdered someone, you doesn't mean at all that you've committed either of those things, right? Okay. But an assault, every murder implicates an assault. Okay. And so there's something called the merger doctrine, where in almost all states, the assault merges with the second degree, in this case that we were just talking about, murder, mm-hmm. right? You wouldn't be charged with murder and also assault and all the other minor charges. I mean, you could, and you could be convicted of all, but you'd only be sentenced for the one, right? So... Um, it's, it's a little interesting. Chauvin was a little unlucky in this, in this, um, in this case, just because usually something like felony assault cannot be the predicate felony for felony murder. It has to be something more like arson where a murder does not imply that an arson happened. But he still got the other murder charge anyway, which is in all States, right? The not felony murder, but the, um, depraved heart. That's what I was going to get into. The next one is third degree murder, which again, you say second degree, third degree, you know, it's a little confusing. So instead, depraved heart murder, which is an act that is so reckless and careless that it shows like, uh, I mean, you can look up case law that will describe this in 8 billion different ways, but essentially that you do not give a shit about human life. You create it, you commit an act so vile and reckless that it was clear that you did not care whether someone lived or died. And I think that's a great description of what he did. Uh, he, well, I mean, just my own personal opinion. I wasn't there for the trial or anything. Sure, sure. And that makes sense. But it's actually the most controversial of all of his charges. Oh, really? Because, I mean, originally it was dismissed by the judge outright as not legally possible. Huh. Uh, because, and and this is why I think the jury convicted him, but why it was the the judge was iffy on whether it should even be allowed is that the way that you're taught in law school, the way it's taught like for the bar exam, the, all that stuff depraved heart murder usually means an act to generally like the people. Usually the, the classic example is firing a gun wildly into a crowd, mm. right? You're not aiming your, your tar- at a, at a person, right? There's no gen- there's no target specifically. You're just doing something really reckless and crazy and someone gets hit and dies. Right. Whereas in this case it was, you know, aimed all his you know 
all of Chauvin's actions were aimed directly at George Floyd, right? right. So it is not the traditional um, definition of depraved heart murder. However, the prosecution um, charged him with it, argued that it should be allowed. The judge originally dismissed it. But then in between when the judge dismissed it and when the trial started, there was a case from the Minnesota Court of Appeals that came down that you know was right on exactly this issue. And they said, nope, it can definitely be charged. Hmm. So he added it back in. Sure. And, uh, yeah, and he was convicted of that as well. Um, so that's, uh, the, the exact phrasing is, uh, an act that is eminently dangerous to others, which makes it sound like on its face that it's an act that is dangerous to like lots of people. Right. Okay. But the way that it was defined in the jury instruction, an act eminently dangerous to others is just an act that is highly likely to cause death. Okay. So the jurors don't have that legal background where depraved heart murder is usually this, you know, firing wildly into a crowd. They don't have any of that, right? Yeah. All they see is the crime as it's defined in the statute, and they'll get some jury instructions that further define some key terms. So because of that, I think they were very willing to convict him of it. From my point of view, it was a little iffy simply because of how I learned it before. But I think under how the statute is read and how the jury instructions are read, I think that it's a valid conviction as well, it, it, but it's just legally uh, a bit weird. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's it's a strange way to look at depraved heart murder. Which one is the more serious charge? The felony murder. That's oh, really? sec that's second degree. It, when they say second and third degree, that's literally separating out which is more serious. Mm -hmm. So second degree assault in Colorado, for example, is more serious than third degree assault by definition. That's really weird because I personally would be much more incensed at a depraved heart murder than like a committing a felony and somebody dies in the process murder felony murder is a pretty controversial crime okay. because in some states for example if you were to rob a bank let's say the three of us were to rob a bank one of us is the getaway driver the two leave the bank with the guns and the money and the cops start a shootout mm -hmm. right with with the robbers mm -hmm. and they hit someone and kill them the cops hit someone yeah the okay. cops the is, robbers get the felony murder In charge. some cases, that's felony murder. In some jurisdictions, it wouldn't be because it has to be one of the people in the conspiracy. One of the robbers would have to do it. Okay. Um, but, Let's put an asterisk next to conspiracy there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so... Not all conspiracies, hashtag. <laughs> yeah, not, not all conspiracies, goddammit. <laughs> so it would be... But in some cases, it would be. And not only would it be felony murder for the robbers, but also for the getaway driver. So they're just sitting there in the car... I mean, granted, they're obviously complicit in the robbery, but yeah. they're now a murderer. Okay. Yeah, I'm the getaway driver. All I'm doing is sitting in the car, listening to a podcast with headphones on, waiting for you guys to come back in from the bank. Yeah, baby driver. And yeah. before I know it, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and before I know it, I'm being charged with felony murder. Yeah. Because... Maybe you shouldn't be abetting a fucking bank robbery, homie. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. But but it's it's the kind of thing to where I, I get how you said it's a, one of the most controversial. I get how that is unintuitive, though it makes perfect sense. I should be charged with something. And I and the and the the person wouldn't have been killed if I wasn't helping with the crime because they needed a getaway driver. That would be you know I get how all that lines up. And yet, I would think if I'm the criminal helping rob the bank, I don't have a gun. I'm not going to get charged with murder, right? Isn't second degree usually the one where like you wanted to kill someone, but like it wasn't premeditated? Like you walk in on your spouse cheating with someone, and you kill one or both of them, and that's a second degree murder because you intentionally killed them, but it wasn't something you planned out. So you're thinking of voluntary manslaughter. The the oh, that's voluntary manslaughter, right? So right. the um, first off, let's just say that. However you define first, second, third degree murder, like a lot of states don't even have third degree murder. It's, it all depends on the state, right? They can define it however they want. Um, you know, and in some states, I'm sure felony murder is first degree murder. You know, it, it's all 
it really doesn't matter. These are just terms that, that the Minnesota legislature has decided on, but they don't really have any particular meaning. But the general conception of like a, an impassioned murder, mm-hmm. what you're talking about, where your your passions are inflamed to such an extent that you can't really be held culpable at the same to the same extent that someone else would mm-hmm. for their actions. That's voluntary manslaughter. The classic case being you come home. And you find your wife in bed with another man, you shoot them both and kill them. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the classic case of voluntary manslaughter. Um, yeah, and then involuntary. That's considered like third, fourth degree. Uh, well, it it just. I always heard manslaughter was like the least serious of them. Well, it's it's not. It is less serious. You know, that's why they created a different category for it and call it manslaughter instead of murder. But um, it is still a fairly serious charge. Right. It's just you still not, kill the dude. Yeah, I mean. Or it, you're dead. And there's a big. I'm assuming big mountain of difference between voluntary and involuntary manslaughter. You know, if, if you're driving a little recklessly and serve one of the sidewalk and hit somebody that you involuntarily manslaughtered that person, but that's not indicative of the kind of person that you are and the kind of risk that you pose being out in society while being more careful or maybe not being allowed to drive. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you voluntarily manslaughter somebody, you're the kind of person who when properly impassioned will, will manslaughter somebody. I like verbing manslaughter. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, so, and then there was the, the third charge. So he was charged with those two murder. There was also a second-degree manslaughter, which uh, just think of as uh, there's basically two elements to it. You were objectively should have been aware of a high risk. What you were doing created a high risk of a substantial bodily harm, mm. and that there was also a subjective understanding that you were doing that, and that the harm may result, right? So it's both an objective, a reasonable person in your shoes should have known that this was a high risk to this person. And also you did understand it. Oh, is that like and, negligent, like not tying down your load when, when you carry something heavy on the highway or? Uh, I mean, I'm not really sure how that fits per se, but um, yeah, it's like, um, it does borrow a lot from what you're describing would be like torts, like negligence is, is tort law. And that, and that's, um, and a negligence that results in someone dying though. Negligence that, Oh, if it ends up in someone's death, then I mean, it depends on what a reasonable person would do in that situation. Right. I mean, if you tied it down, you know, as hard as humanly possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's not negligence. But if you just didn't, really check at all or if you're the dipshit on the highway that everyone's seen with their arm out the window holding the thing on the roof of their car yeah. right uh, that I would, would like probably to... be negligent behavior legally i'm gonna go ahead and yeah say. and so then when whatever you're holding falls and hits the person in the windshield behind you and they die you're charged with this in some capacity of having ended that person's life yeah 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 absolutely so like and it, and it is i mean it's that's what he was charged with even though it says manslaughter it doesn't say murder at the end of the day it's you you were you knew or and you should have known that you were doing something completely fucked up to this person and that substantial bodily harm would follow. And substantial bodily harm can even mean loss of consciousness. So even if he didn't die, but had just lost consciousness and was revived later, mm-hmm. still could have been guilty of this charge. But uh, not with the murder add-on. Not with the murders, no. You have to have a death for there to be murder. Cool. Um, well, not cool. At least that part's intuitive. Yeah. Um, oh, and just to clarify, I think I, I think I misspoke there. So you do have to have a death for the manslaughter, but the but the 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 bodily harm that was intended or that could have flowed is just substantial it could just mean loss of consciousness uh that's that's what i mean it's not the manslaughter can't happen with without a death i mean it definitely requires a death it's just that for the definition of the parts of that statute that say like culpable negligence to be culpably negligent you don't necessarily need to kill someone mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying you just mm-hmm. need to you need to have uh, 
done something that could, done something that could have caused substantially bodily harm, which doesn't necessarily require a death. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so those are the charges he was he was charged with. I don't think, I'll just say right up top, I don't think it's controversial that he was convicted of these things per se. I think that um, the evidence was overwhelming. Um, you know, and I thought the prosecution did a fantastic job putting their case together. I do think there's some weirdness because, like I said, the felony murder, it's a little different in Minnesota. Most states do not allow it to be charged that way. Depraved heart murder, a little strange. Most people do not think of depraved heart murder in that sense. But I do think the evidence was there for a conviction on, on all three. And I think the second degree manslaughter was a slam dunk. I mean, it just wasn't. But, you know, at the same time, you don't know that until you see the evidence. Right. One good thing about the trial is we saw tons of video footage that was never before released. You know, the only video footage you saw pre-trial was that the knee on the neck for the nine minutes or so before the paramedics came. Um, I actually saw the body cam footage that was leaked before I saw that one. Oh, did you? Yeah. yeah. From which officer do you know? Uh, it was it was the same one that you mentioned in your post. Where, Lane? Yeah, yeah. Where, like, it looked eminently reasonable what that what they were doing when you watch that video. Not, like, reasonable reasonable, but, like, I was like, oh, yeah, I could see I'd, I'd be in that situation, too, if I was a cop. And then, like, a week or two later, I watched the, the, the video where he's kneeling on his neck, and I was like, oh, he just straight up murdered the dude. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's, I mean... Like, because the, the, the body cam footage stopped before the full nine minutes of neck kneeling. Right. Yeah. It does. It, um, and you can't really, because that's the officer, I think, that was on his legs. Okay. So, in that, in that part where Chauvin's kneeling on George Floyd's neck. Uh, so, you don't really get a good view from that angle. Yeah. So, even if it continued, you wouldn't necessarily see all that was happening um mm -hmm. but yeah i mean that's that's a good place to start so i mean you had this video that apparently was leaked i didn't see it until the trial but um that was the full like 20 minutes before this incident yeah right? did, and, did it end i didn't mean to interrupt but no, i didn't fine. mean to interrupt but i needed to ask you said it ended before uh like the the it didn't it didn't encompass the entire time that Chauvin was on the guy that no. the video ended. Did the guy turn the camera off or just they didn't leak that part of the footage? I think they just didn't leak out the full footage. Yeah, from what I remember from Lane's body cam footage, it showed the whole incident. Okay. okay. I, okay. I don't think it skipped at all. There was Chauvin's was missing because his fell off during the struggle. His body cam actually fell off and you can okay. see it in the video on the ground. See, but everyone else had it on the whole time. Other than circumstances like that, because that seems perfectly reasonable. You know, it should be affixed properly, but things, you know, come off. Especially, Especially when you're wrestling a dude. Absolutely. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. And I then I'll let you finish, you know, your actual stuff. But I just need to say, I feel like anytime there's any sort of, you know, argument between, well, the cop said this and the, the, the person that is saying the cop did this said that. And the cop's like, yeah, my body cam footage is off. And it's like, well, then we believe the other guy. Right. Like, I mean, you have a camera for a reason. We paid for you to have a camera. You keep that shit on. And the cool thing is, is it proves you're right if you did it mm -hmm. or if, if, if you're doing the right thing. Right. Right. No excuse. Anyway, unless like, yeah, you know, falls off. That's a fair excuse. Unless there's this rampant thing of them falling off, then we're gonna need <laughs> we're gonna need better fasteners. Sorry to digress. Um, no, you're fine. But yeah, the original. Uh, so there was the report from the Cup Foods, which was the store that George Floyd was in right before the incident happened. Called in that he had tried to buy, I think it was cigarettes, with uh, a fake twenty dollar bill. He gets into his car. The cops show up uh, to talk to him about it. Officer Lane. It's actually Chauvin's not in the picture at all at this point. It's just two of the other officers who are also charged with uh, other charges. But um, oh, is that trial still going to come out down later? Yeah, yeah, okay. they're they're going to trial. I think next month. Okay. Um, it's not for the same charges. They're for they're on trial for aiding and abetting, uh, but they're still on the hook. 
a bit for what happened. Um, okay. So it's Officer Lane and King at first, and they, they go up to George Floyd's driver. He's in the driver's side, and, and Officer Lane, like, taps on his window with, like, the flashlight or whatever. And then as soon as George Floyd sees the, the police, he's, Im- he's immediately histrionic. He is he's being given orders by officer lane and he's sort of following them where he will, if he's asked enough times, he will put his hands on his head, but then they'll like slide down onto the, onto the steering wheel. And he's like, uh, he's I don't visibly know, crying. fucked up on some kind of, he's definitely freaking out. He seems high. He's definitely, yeah. um, very, he's just freaked out. He's crying perhaps a little. It, it, he just feels like it, it, the video footage is very telling of the situation. It was a, that it was just this avalanche waiting to happen. The, you use the, the word histrionic. Uh, yeah. For those of us with uh, a mere uh, fifth grade education. <laughs> it just means a very emotional, very like, um, uh, you know, whipped up into kind of a frenzy a little bit. Like uh, just very like uh, emotionally hijacked. Different than hysterical? You know, basically hysterical. I mean, I don't, yeah. But hysterical is super loaded because that's just what they used to say women had as a problem. Well, I think histrionic has the same root word in, in his, yeah. his, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, the, the biggest lesson I took from watching that first video was like, do drugs in a safe place. Don't go out in public where there's going to be a lot of other people, like maybe in the woods or something where it's relatively isolated. But Jesus Christ, don't do drugs and then go out on the street because bad things could happen. And it's really hard to react like a reasonable person when you're fucked up. Yeah. And I don't think drugs should be illegal at all. And I don't think that anybody should be killed for having a good time on drugs. But <sighs> your, good time should, your, your good time should be safe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it sucks. This um, is this is not relating to the case at all, or to George Floyd at all. I'm just thinking, like, in general, if you're going to be on stuff, don't be driving. Well, oh yeah, definitely that. Too. Yeah, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't, I don't think that's controversial. Yeah, right. And I do believe he was about to drive some people home, so he was he wasn't driving at the time, but he was about to, I think. But it, in either case, you know, they they take him out of the car. He's fine for a minute. They're talking to him on the ground. You know, he's, you know, still a little upset, but he's not freaking out. He's not resisting or anything. They're not even arresting him really at this point. He is in handcuffs and they're in the middle of an arrest, but they're not like put, bringing him into the squad car or anything. So he's fine for a minute. Then they bring him over to the squad car to actually bring him to the, the jail to book him. And that's when everything goes completely off the rails. George Floyd tries with everything he has to not get in that car. Mm-hmm. And that's in that goes on for about four minutes um, including during those four minutes of struggle, him saying, I can't breathe a few times. The um, first time he sat down in the car, like even they, they weren't even touching him yet. And he was saying that. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, so just to contextualize a little, when he says it later and they don't, they kind of ignore him. There's, there is some reasonableness in there where it's like, okay, well, you, you know, you not only are you speaking right now, but you've been saying this for like 10 minutes, even before we were doing yeah. this. You were saying this when you were sitting down. And then, but so they, they continue this for about four minutes. That's when they drag him to the ground and that's when the, the hold starts. Yeah. Uh, and I think, um, I, I, if I'm being honest, I don't think it was unreasonable at first. Like, I think the fact that they're putting him in this hold, that they've got him on the ground, that's probably okay. I'm okay with all this, right? And just for a couple of minutes, but there's... And I understand why the leaked footage stopped there. Because right, right. right up until that point, you're like, yeah, they're, they're doing things more or less reasonably. This right. is a shitty situation. But nothing's fucked up yet. But it's just when you see the next seven minutes. Right. And then so then it continues. And then at some point, George Floyd is saying, I can't breathe. And you can tell mm-hmm. his voice is starting to fade mm-hmm. and he's getting slower. 
and they still kept the knee on the neck. And this was, I think, the testimony that really hit it home for me was from this guy, Dr. Tobin, who was a pulmonologist who testified for the prosecution. He would show George Floyd these little tiny moments in the, in the video where he was like putting his finger up against the tire and up against the ground to try to create just a little bit more space for his chest. But that was him trying to, the way he put it was trying to literally breathe with his fingers like trying to just push just a little bit, just to create a little bit of space for his chest. And then he, they actually show the moment that George Floyd goes unconscious. You can see his head just drop. Oh. And that's when he's unconscious. And then they keep the knee on the neck, or Chauvin keeps his knee on the neck for another three and a half minutes after that. And about 45 seconds after he goes unconscious, one of the officers tells Chauvin, and this was like the nail in the coffin for me, tells him, I can't find a pulse. And then Chauvin's knee stays on the neck for another two minutes and 44 seconds before the paramedics tap him on the shoulder saying they're here. And that's when he lets him up. So I've got a couple, I guess, three quick thoughts. One, I haven't watched the video. Um, I well, I'm bring... sorry to, to bring that no, to no, you. No, no, no. It's I, depressing I, stuff. It is. It's and I, I, I've, I've read every uh, detailed account I've come across. I just, I couldn't bring myself to sit and watch it. I knew it would wreck my day. Um, part of me thinks that I, you know, so what you should pay that price to feel what's going on. But I mean, I, I'm a very, uh, empathetic person. I'm making this point much longer than I meant to say, I guess what I'm saying is I didn't see the video. So I'm what you're what you're reciting is what I had heard before. Other than the fact that I didn't know that he had been unconscious for minutes before the paramedics showed up or that the other officer said, I can't find a pulse. Cause I, I, I had seen moments or pictures or something where, you know, Chauvin's on him kind of just shooting the shit, you know, yep. Got this guy waiting for him to calm down talking with my fellow officers, whatever, like it, he didn't, he didn't behave like somebody who was like, ah, I got him. He, you know, I'm, right. I'm killing him right now right. and getting off on it. Right. Um, so you didn't see the video. No, I, you suggest I watch it. Maybe up yeah. to you. Like the thing that I really got out of it is that I think he killed him, not because he was trying to kill him, but because there were other people around saying you're killing him, get off him. And he was like, fuck you. I do what I want. You tell me to get off this guy. I'm going to stay on him. Hmm. And like, in his mind, he wasn't killing the guy, obviously, but he was staying on him to flex his power at these people who were worried about the guy's life. And that is like, that to me is the really depraved part that this was something that was dangerous to the dude and he was doing it anyway because there were punk kids over there trying to tell him to worry about the dude's life and he wasn't gonna, he wasn't gonna take his knee off because they said so. The, like, the, that's, the, that's just, mm. The other part that gets to me, he's in handcuffs at this point. Yeah, wait, yes. And... You know, I'm not a Brazilian jiu-jitsu expert. Um, you look so much like one. <laughs> to, to, I, I, I give off the vibe of, of master class <laughs> black belt, but um, I've, I've watched a handful of videos and I'm, I'm interested. My point is I know that there are ways to keep people on the ground without putting your knee on their neck. If they're in handcuffs, he could have just rested his knee on his pelvis while he's face down. He, there's nothing he could have done to get up with, you know, 100 pounds of officer leaning on him, right? Right. Uh, I, at least I'm pretty sure. Um, I, if anyone knows better than, please correct me, but I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm uh, quoting I, an actual Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt um, that, you know, w without, without arms, uh, if someone, and I'm saying 100 pounds of officer, because a guy doesn't have to be standing on you, just putting a sizable weight on you, mm -hmm. what can you do? Literally nothing. Yeah. You sit there and flop for a minute until you just surrender. Um, that to me sounds like the way that one should do these sorts of things. Again, he, I don't feel threatened by a guy in handcuffs. Um, 
I, I don't know what George Floyd's measurements are, but I'm a smaller than average dude, or maybe his, I don't know, I'm 5'8", 150 pounds. Most guys are bigger than me. Um, but if he was in handcuffs laying down, I think I'd feel pretty safe, especially if I had three buddies near me, yeah. right? Um, so I, I wouldn't feel like I need to do whatever I can to keep him, keep him under control. And I say that as somebody who's not in a lot of stressful situations like that, but uh, I guess it doesn't strike me as uh, like th- that, that use of force, um, that the application of that use of force to the neck rather than anywhere else is what kind of surprises me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't well, know what, what if there's punk kids telling you to get off his neck. Well, I mean, then, you know, obviously then I've got to stay on. Oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it, it's, I feel like I brought that up for another reason. Oh, New York banned uh, kneeling on people. Did they ban it or was it introduced? I, it was outlawed. I, oh, think, okay, I think it's okay. illegal. I, 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 I wasn't sure if they voted the, on it. That was the impression I got is that it was put passed into law. So. Yeah. So you, you what that means is like if I've got a guy who's not in handcuffs yet and I can't put my knee on the small of his back, I basically need four buddies to hold down each an appendage. And I, I don't know how else I'm going to put somebody down without uh again i'm not an expert at at this sort of thing but um i heard that's usually how chimpanzees have coups ripping each other's arms off no no no. uh they have four buddies and uh yeah one each one grabs a limb and the other dude like punches him in the face or whatever but yeah you, you if you when you don't know martial arts techniques <laughs> and when you do it's interesting i'm part of this is stuff i learned elsewhere and part of this is from a uh, semi-recent episode of sam harris's podcast where he has on uh a black belt uh jujitsu uh practitioner who runs uh, a slew of dojos across the country including one that's working with a small police municipality but that's that gets more into the episode um this guy he's one of the most like erratic guests he's i don't know if he had too much coffee or something or if he was nervous <laughs> about being on the air but he's really really like oh and then l- let me tell you this part oh yeah no no that's not even the part man let me and like okay. his energy is a lot but okay. in the last 30 minutes he gets into the actual numbers of uh what training can do for officers and stuff. But he talks about is like, you know, I'm an expert. I couldn't keep somebody down if I couldn't touch their torso. Right. And like, and he's like, and he emphasizes over and over, like I'm a professional. Mm-hmm. I've been doing this for 20 years professionally. Mm-hmm. I'm not an officer who gets two hours of training a year, yeah. you know? Um, anyway, I, I, I think I heard parts of that, like where he said the only option, if you can't like touch their torso and put them in a hold is to beat them until they're half unconscious. Yeah. Yeah. Based or again, have four friends sitting in their arms right. and legs. Like yeah. there's, there's not much to do to somebody unless you can attack their center of gravity to, to hold them down. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm bringing, this sounds like I'm making a huge digression, but it was related because, uh, the, I mean, again, the, the, the picture I saw of Chauvin and again, I didn't see the video. He didn't strike me as somebody who was trying to murder this guy. He, he was holding him down, but I, I, to my untrained and only barely informed eyes, it seems like there were way safer ways he could have been doing that. And I think that that alone makes it, you know, would have made this a big, big issue if even if Floyd hadn't died or lost consciousness. It's like, what are you on his goddamn neck for? Are you kidding me? I think that's where the depraved heart thing really feels like it fits to me because he didn't give a shit about if he was endangering someone's life with what hmm. he was doing. Yeah, and if the officer is like, there's that subjective standard. You have to understand what you're doing. Yeah. And they, they're telling him, you know, we, we can't find a pulse. And at that point, you are aware of what you're doing. Like right. you are now in the air. You're no longer in the, I am restraining them or even restraining them unreasonably. You're now in the realm of this guy may actually be dead. And, and I'm staying on him anyway. Right. And I'm just, uh, you know, for two minutes and 44 seconds, which count that out. That's a long time. Yeah. And you just don't move. So what sort of, um, case did, 
I mean, and obviously this this case went on for like how many hours were they in, in the courtroom for? Like, Usually, I mean, it's a f- like five to six. I mean, they'll have like they'll have like three hours in the morning with like a fifteen minute break in in the middle somewhere, then an hour for lunch, then three more hours in the afternoon with like a fifteen minute break, and then you multiply that out by you know twelve or thirteen full days of court. So. You know, so fifty ish hours yeah, ballpark, even more, 50, 60. 65. So so they sat there for sixty hours discussing this. So obviously, I, I we can't get into every argument made by each side, but I'm kind of curious in broad strokes what what did the defense have to say and what did the prosecution have to say? Because I know the defense tried to do things like, and first of all, we're going to link to a bunch of really cool posts that that Justin put together on the Mott, like we mentioned at the top, um, that. They were they were just great weekly kind of updates, you know, for me, who's not equipped to watch a trial and a be able to pay attention and b understand what I'm watching. I was able to kind of get the digest of what was happening. It was really cool. Um, so I, I know some of this, but for the people who haven't read these yet, like what, what in broad strokes were the, the cases made by the defense and the prosecution? Like I know the, the charges they brought against, but what, what did the cases look like? Sure. So we've already basically been touching on what the prosecution was arguing. The whole idea of him keeping the knee on the neck for that long is flies in the face of Minneapolis police training, at least according to them, and what is a reason, what a reasonable officer should do in his situation. Uh, and that uh, one thing we didn't really hit on, but kind of implicitly did, I suppose, is the cause. Um, what was actually the cause of death? Was it the knee? Right. Or was it the drugs in George Floyd's system? That was a big part of the case. I knew that was a big contention in that. It, it, I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry. I'll try and I'll keep my mouth shut You're for fine. two minutes. But <laughs> that when, when I knew that that was part of what was going on, it was kind of just like it strained credulity that like you're telling me that this guy died from asphyxiation while someone was pressing the knee on his, on, on his neck, but it happened to be because he was on drugs. Like just it's possible. It's definitely possible. People, right. people asphyxiate by taking too many drugs all the time. Um, but, but for those two minutes to line up, for those moments to line up so well to each other, and you're, you're telling me you're, you're, you're making that case, that, that strained my credulity to the point where I was severely annoyed. Well, but, you know, and that makes sense, but you got to think from the defense side of things, they just have to put reasonable doubt. And they really only need one juror. They can't get an acquittal with one juror, but they can't get a mistrial. Right. So if they get one juror to steadfastly declare that there is a reasonable doubt that George Floyd's death was caused by the uh, the, the hold and the the uh, cardiopulmonary arrest that resulted, that you either push off the trial and have them have to do this all over again, or you may even get an acquittal. So but you're you're right, I think. And that's why the jury, I think, found him guilty of all these charges is even though they tried to say that essentially because George Floyd had fentanyl in his system. And fentanyl is now infamous for being this drug where very little is required for you to die from it, right? And that's so, what the uh, big opioid crisis, crisis is mainly about, right? Well, it's that's the overdosing, at yes, least. Yeah. I mean, the opioids themselves, I mean, like heroin obviously causes a ton of problems by itself, but, you know, people are now more than ever, there's fentanyl in it because it's cheaper, and so you put some of that in with the heroin and someone takes it thinking it's a regular amount of what the drug they're used to, and then they overdose. We all saw Pulp Fiction. It wasn't fentanyl, but she thought yeah. she was doing a line of coke and it was heroin. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so... Um, Sorry, I inject levity to keep things cool. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Need some humor for these things. Uh, it's true even in the courtroom. Sometimes you got to laugh because otherwise you'd just be depressed all the time. Um, but so, I mean, it's reasonable to at least inquire into that, right? He had... I can't remember the exact amounts. I don't know. Uh, I'm not a 
pharmacists, you know, I don't know pharmaceuticals very well, but he had a, amounts of fentanyl in his system that could have produced an overdose. It was unlikely. It wasn't uh, a very high amount. And it also, this was a man who had an admitted uh, heroin addiction, or at least opiate addiction. So his tolerance was likely higher. He had one of the witnesses that testified said that they had been doing heroin together for years. Um, and so, you know, it's reasonable to assume that his tolerance was high even compared to compared to a regular person and it was not a super high amount of fentanyl either but he also had meth in his system at the same time and he also had a bad heart so that was the two ways they tried to plant uh, doubt in the minds of the jurors was to say look not only was he on fentanyl which slows your breathing uh, and that's how people die of, of these overdoses the the breathing slows and stops eventually but also he had a bad heart and he had meth in his system. And they made the point over and over again that even though amphetamines are often prescribed for certain things, methamphetamine, that there's no safe amount of methamphetamine for you to have in your system. Hmm. Uh, however, some of the doctors for the prosecution testified that his heart, while it was showing signs of heart disease and was weakened in some ways, it was actually a lot stronger than the defense made it out to be. Uh, that it was unlikely for that amount of... Um, meth to have killed him that even though his heart was enlarged that it was you know fairly tough and also for the um for the fentanyl overdose part of what it does is it restricts your the the rate of breathing right you can tell from dr tobin's testimony that the rate of breathing never changed he wasn't able to breathe very well but he was still trying to take breaths at the same rate that a normal person would take them they just weren't good enough breaths to get the sufficient oxygen in but fentanyl if it was a fentanyl overdose then it would have been that his rate of breathing slowed down dramatically. And so he wouldn't have been trying to take breaths as often. That's an awesome uh, example of expert testimony. Yeah. Because... Dr. Know, I, Tobin I, was fantastic. That was the He was one of the best witnesses I've ever seen in any trial, bar none. He was on the stand for like three plus hours. And I know that's a really long time, but it's totally worth watching some of it because he was an all-star. He was showing the jurors like he would take off his own tie and show them like, you know, parts like if you put pressure on here it's going to slow down your breathing and and he had all these demonstratives showing exactly where everyone was at certain times and how much pressure was being put on he's the one who we had like the finger being placed up against the car to show he's trying to breathe with his finger uh he was the one who was calculating frame by frame when he was trying to breathe so he could get a rough breathing rate so that we know that it wasn't fentanyl overdose because his breathing rate would have uh, would have been much, much lower. Uh, he was an unbelievable witness. Um, so yeah, expert testimony, hundred uh, percent, incredibly important. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, cause like I said, just to me, I have my, my prior that I would think would be unlikely that these two events would line up. You know, it could be the stress of being arrested might, you know, cause my already bad heart to explode, which is probably the case they're making or something. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, the, the rate of breathing slowing down isn't something I knew about. Um, you know, even having seen simulated overdoses, you know, watching Breaking Bad or something, right? Uh, it's um, that 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 sort of then, of course, he's got the, the video detail to prove like, so here's what you would expect to see if this was the case. Let's take a look and test this experimentally. Oh, look, we don't we don't observe that. In fact, we see the opposite. Therefore, we can yeah. in. That's awesome. Um, I know I'm making a really like haphazard way of articulating that. I'm just uh, the. I don't know. I guess I'm just overwhelmed by awesome expert testimony. I can imagine that there were probably some bullshit experts coming in saying, uh, and I'm just, you know, someone comes in, oh, no, that's the only safe way to hold somebody down. I'm sure, you know, I can imagine somebody saying, or, you know, oh, no, that's uh, that's what, I, I don't know. You know what I mean? Uh, was there any bad expert testimony so I don't have to make up examples? 
Uh, well, I think a lot of people would argue that the defense expert testimony was pretty bad. Uh, I don't necessarily think it was. I don't have the medical or police training expertise or background to say, but, uh, you know, they only had two experts. Um, and one was a police use of force expert. And, you know, he testified that it was actually fairly reasonable what George, uh, Derek Chauvin did. And the thing is, though, like with juries, one thing you have to understand is that little things can really fuck with your perception of people, right? Just little things. So, for example, Barry Broad was the expert for the defense for police use of force. He was testifying that it was reasonable what uh, Derek Chauvin did. He also, I think, may have lost a lot of credibility in the jurors' minds, at least in mine. It, you know, he, it made me think less of him because he was not able to give the, the prosecution anything when cross-examining. When they were cross-examining him about what their experts had said and why he might be wrong, you know, he was unwilling to admit to even things that seemed very reasonable. Like, for example, whether or not, at, you know, at what point during this incident was Derek Chauvin even using force? Hmm. He seemed to be arguing that even necessarily the knee on the neck wasn't necessarily a use of force at all because it wasn't intended to cause pain or that it wasn't actually causing pain. It was something to that effect. Okay. And it seemed very, like it, like you said earlier, stretching incredulity. It did seem to, you know, how can anyone not see that as some kind of use of force? And so things like that are going to make the jurors turn against you. You know, if you're if you're unreasonable on the stand for just little points against you, you look like a bad witness and you look like a liar. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You know, I, I immediately felt my incredulity meters skyrocketing and my blood pressure going up when he was like, that's not a use of force. Then I'm like, well, maybe it's a legal definition that it has to hurt or something. And yet if I've got you in an arm bar where you can't move, but if you try to move, it really hurts. Well, I'm not using force. It only, it only, it only hurts if you try and move. Right. Yeah, um, I mean, and I mean, I and my my definition of force comes from physics, and I'm like, no, I don't, I don't think so. That sounds like <laughs> sounds like you're using force to me. Um, so, I, I heard one of the big things about this trial that made this trial uh, unique was that cops actually testified against Chauvin. Oh yeah, saying that Many. he used a lot of unnecessary force. Is that really as amazingly um, novel as people are making out to be? I hear, keep hearing about this like blue wall of silence where. No cops ever testify against another cop, even if they saw him stabbing someone in the eye. Well, yeah, I suppose. I mean, so one reason I could see that that's true is that a lot of the officers that testified were in the Minneapolis Police Department, right? So they were literally turning against someone they work with. Uh, you had several people high up. Lieutenant Zimmerman, who was like third in command, testified against him. His former supervisor, Sergeant Pluger, testified against him. And the chief of Minneapolis Police, Madaria Arredondo testified against him as well, all saying Pluger was a little bit iffy, but the other two were no nonsense. This was wrong, right? Um, this was way too much force. Or this something. was, yeah, this wasn't what we teach our officers. This was totally unnecessary. That was like an exact quote from Zimmerman. He was very, very clear that he didn't agree with the use of force here. Um, some of the officers, though, were, I mean, you got to think how many officers are there in the country and how many testified. I mean, there's, you know, thousands and thousands of police and there was i think maybe eight nine cops that testified in this case so yeah. you can probably find a few yeah. granted some of them were in the minneapolis police department itself and that's a little tough to testify against someone you knew but like one of the officers was jody steiger who was a uh, with the lapd you know what does it matter to him that some cop in minneapolis goes under you know what i'm saying maybe he doesn't care yeah i just um, i'd always heard that that was like that was a huge thing and that was one of the reasons that it's almost impossible to be a police officer and be ethical uh, because either you 
are run out of the police department within a year or two or you lie on the stand to protect your fellow officers and like it didn't happen this time well i certainly can't say what that what that is like for police officers i've never been one but i can say that um in a high profile case like this where you have so much effort already being put towards it so much budget you can probably find people who will testify against them right it's the average case where you don't have this much effort put towards i mean you just don't have the time so trying to find officers who will testify against this person in their use of force that takes a lot of time and money that the state is not going to put towards individual cases right okay. but they do in this case because it was so high profile okay you know what i'm saying so, so like i guess if you want justice you have to have a very high profile case. well it's if you want justice to be meted out as exactly as possible you know, i think i think the criminal justice system does a fair enough job getting it pretty close but there is so much that could be in every case so much evidence that could be more thoroughly analyzed that's just not because who the fuck has the time for that who has the money for that right. how many experts am i going to am i going to ask to to dissect everything right. you know like i had one case where you know this guy had uh, been accused of beating up some dude outside of a of a nightclub and you know there was security footage from across the street from a camera like on the street mm -hmm. we got the footage of the of the from the security camera and the the 20 or so seconds where the actual incident happened was cut out and so you know that's Wait, it right i don't know and we'll never know because it, to figure out why that wasn't working at the time would require an expert it would require oh. someone who knows this stuff right yeah. so that's every little piece of evidence could probably be analyzed a little bit further you so could if just you go can on and on somehow get to those records and have them deleted and it's not a high-profile case, you'll get away with it. Uh, I mean, I don't want to say that, but I, I don't. Um, I mean, l look, in this particular case, there was other evidence that he did it, right? Yeah. There's other camera footage. Yeah. But I'm just saying in this for this one other angle, it would have been nice to see it because there was only one other video, and it wasn't very good. So I would have liked to see a steady security camera footage, right? Yeah. Um, but I didn't have it. Now, I, you know, is it true that you could... If you had access to all the records and deleted, I mean, that that's a high risk because you're talking, if you get caught doing that, you're done. Your career is over, right? No matter who you are, you have to be like, I would imagine, top of the top brass to get away with something like that. What if you're already a criminal? This is a criminal who's well, charged with kicking somebody to death, not somebody who is going to be, you know, using their, their hacker skills to yeah, okay, Mr. Yeah, Rumble. Well, so that's the thing, though, but that's, that's a reasonable like line and, of thinking and let me let me just say too that most defendants they don't they don't understand that stuff they right. don't even know there would there would be a camera there you know mm -hmm. most defendants are you know i love them but they're not the smartest bunch <laughs> you know they don't uh, that's why they ended up getting in a fight like that well, yeah i mean that's pretty much the reason right i mean that's you know unfortunately a lot of criminality is just like kind of a combination unfortunate combination of stupidity and lack of impulse control you know um so you know, I'm, I wouldn't be worried about that. Uh, I don't, uh, but I suppose it is possible. If you knew the right people and were smart and, and, and sharp enough, it is, it is possible, I suppose. Okay. And that's why we need Batman. <laughs> Thank God for Batman. <laughs> All right. So, so the defense didn't have really much, but I guess when your guy's clearly guilty. Well, one, one thing that I think could come up on appeal was the amount of witnesses. So part of me is worried that my decision like my um, conclusion that Derek Chauvin is guilty mm -hmm. comes more from just the amount of witnesses that were against him, right? I mean, there was like eight or nine officers that testified that that was an unreasonable use of force. There was probably six or seven doctors 
that testified to the cause in one form or another of, of George Floyd's death. Yeah. And Didn't you say that like had they had some of the biggest prosecuting attorneys in the state? Right. So, and that's another, I mean, that's a, it's a little bit beside the point, but they did have a lot of manpower. I mean, they had four, first of all, four prosecutors were doing openings, closings, direct and cross examinations, all the trial stuff that you have to do. They had four people. The defense had one guy hmm. doing all that work. Now, granted, he had a pretty big fund. I, I think there was like a police union that was funding the defense, and I'm sure he had people behind the scenes. But you had a rotating group of prosecutors for each witness, right? So they don't have to be prepared with a, with a really good cross of every single doctor and why they might be wrong about XYZ thing and why their studies might be bullshit. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's incredibly fucking hard for one guy to do. Yeah. And then on top of that, you had a lot of motions hearings, stuff like, for example, we talked earlier about that third degree murder charge not coming in. Originally it wasn't, it was dismissed. The prosecution argued to bring it back. The guy who argued to have bring it back, if I'm remembering correctly, was Neil Cutyall, who is like this, former Yale grad was an assistant attorney general or like was like second in command at the, you know, at the Manhattan federal prosecutor's office and is now this big legal, like well-known guy. And here he is on this case. Mm -hmm. He's what he was hired. What's called pro hoc vice. So that means being in on a case, you're not legally able to practice in that spot, but you are for this one case. Oh, you can, you can be brought in for one case. Uh, and so he was brought in pro hoc vice to argue just one motion essentially you know, I mean, you're talking getting in, it'd be like asking LeBron James to come play for your high school basketball team for one game. You know so what I mean? Like if the state put this many resources, even into prosecuting an innocent person, they could get a guilty verdict. Oh yeah. I mean, if it, like, I guess, I, you know, that, you know, you're talking, the situation can go any one, a million different ways. So many variables in this case, their evidence was fairly, um, yeah. obvious the, i mean the evidence itself was the videotape right right so you had a clear shot of this of this instant of this instance but yeah i suppose i mean it does make it harder right of course mm -hmm. if, if the other if the state is coming at you with everything they've got tons of money tons of time tons of resources tons of very intelligent people who've been doing this for a long time it's gonna be a fucking uphill battle you know you said that you were worried that your con that your acceptance of the conclusion was based on the uh, cumulativeness volume. of the evidence is how I would put it. Isn't that what you would want to inform your opinion on it? The, well, the, yes, the, but... The quantity and quality of the evidence? Right, but so my, my issue with it is for appeals, right? Because cumulative evidence is not allowed, right? There's there's only... The judge gets leeway in deciding what is cumulative, but you can only say the same thing so many times. Right. Oh, okay, sorry. So one I, argument against an army thing. So even though, I mean, it's just... It's natural, right, for people to see the same... Like the same argument made over and over and over again it looks like you've got just these two experts against like 25 you know at what point do you just go well i mean even if the two are right how am i supposed to decide that i'm just a juror i'm just a regular person you know these 25 people are saying that the defense is wrong they only got two people on their side you know and uh, you know you're not an expert in these in these fields so you're just taking the information as it comes it's really tough and the judge let in so much evidence on the prosecution side that he may have overstepped and now it could create an issue on appeal where he let in too much evidence that was cumulative. It was the same, same thing over and over again and prolonging the trial. What happens if the appeals court finds that that is what happened? Well, if it's a serious enough error, uh, then a new trial may be granted. Uh, I don't yeah. think it would re result in that, but um, it's unlikely. Very few 
uh, appeals work in that way, but you know, it is it is possible. And it does seem like he was towing that line where it's like, this is like the sixth doctor that's testified to this. Are you sure you want to allow that in? Like you seem to be creating issues for yourself that could be avoided. And so I, I guess I was thinking you were when you said you were worried about that, I was thinking from my position of I want to believe what's true about it. Right. Therefore, I will uh, calibrate my, my confidence in a belief to the extent that I get more evidence and more experts right. that are reliable uh, informing me, right? Realistically, um, it is so, the proper way that you would want to, to, to make a decision, but there's the legal constraints. That, that's, that was the, the distinction I wanted to make, and so I didn't know that about appeals. I guess that sort of makes sense, because um, then, then you might just have, you know, take, take all of this case aside, just make up one. You've got one side with a ton of resources who will bring in 100 people who will make their case, and you're a person with a lawyer, and you can only make your case once. And it's like, well, I heard, I heard they, them say it a hundred times and heard you say it once. It sounds like they've got a hundred times as much evidence as you do. Right. Yeah. And that, that's just maybe how a brain works. So that's, that, that would be the case they'd make during an appeal is that, look, they overwhelmed the jury with, with free, uh, what did you call it? Um, cumulative, cumulative evidence. testimony of the right. same thing over and over. It'd be one thing if I brought in a hundred different pieces of evidence to your one piece of counter evidence. That sounds like that should be super encouraged. Right. Right. But for me to bring in a hundred experts to say the same thing like just reinforce that point well and and to be fair to them they were slightly different the experts were slightly different you know you have like uh the pulmonologist dr tobin the the all-star but then you also had like the uh coroner who is also a doctor testified to a lot of the same stuff but he had a completely different role in the case you see what i'm saying so like even though they were called for different reasons their testimony overlapped a lot and that's my worry is that it would result in what is considered cumulative I don't know if you can speak to this because it's not really a legal sort of question, but the thing I worry about a lot is the sort of social fraying we seem to be seeing in the U.S. Like, is there a possibility that people on the far right could say this was an unfair trial, they railroaded him, and just not accept the the results? Well, there's definitely, I mean, that already exists. I mean, and of course, right? You're always going to find people who say stuff like that, but they have a better point than you may be giving them credit for simply because a fair trial in the traditional sense was in my opinion simply not really possible in this case because the average trial when you're called in for jury service right the average crime you steven myself no Never. one has heard of yeah. you know we we don't know it's happened we have no clue were these juries familiar with this already oh yeah whoa I every person wasn't every one juror. of the problems that they had to go through like ten thousand jurors for the oj simpson cases because they had to find 12 that had never heard of this well they probably tried to do that i don't know if they eventually gave up i don't know too much about the oj simpson trial i do know it lasted 11 months which is yeah. fucking bonkers yeah, yeah. but um you know i this case they i guess they threw their hands up and said there's no way we're gonna find anyone huh. you know with how with how rapidly this spread and how crazy it was and how much media coverage we're just not even going to go there so you know they only they only interviewed about 135 prospective jurors. They picked f uh, 15 originally. Uh, and so one out of every like nine or so jurors that they interviewed ended up on the jury. Wow. But they, every single one of them knew about the case. Okay. You know, and, and so normally that's not ever the case. You come in, you, you'll see the charges. You'll know what's going on, what the case is about. Is it a murder trial? Is it like, you know, felony menacing? What is it? Mm -hmm. You know, we'll know that, but we don't know the details. We don't know who the defendant is. We don't know what the circumstances of the case were. We, we're not poisoned or, right. you know, by the well of information out there. You know what I mean? Like, we aren't worried that our city could erupt in riots. That too, you know, and, and they also didn't change venue. 
you know, they were having this trial with Hennepin County residents in, in Hennepin County, which is where the incident took place, which is where if riots had happened, that city would have burned right outside the courthouse. And so, you know, the jurors were way more informed on this matter before it started than your average jury ever would be. Why didn't they change venue? That seems to just like a brain dead first step. Well, because I think I... First of all, you want it to be a jury of your peers. So you want it as close to uh, where the incident happened because it's uh, the idea being that it's a cross-section of people that are closest to you, okay. right? But it's a good question, right? Why, why not put it in a, in a city that doesn't risk burning? I mean, you can't put it outside of Minnesota. It has to be in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. But you can put it in another county. They may have also been worried about how many jurors they could call. A lot of the other counties are probably really small. They called, you know, the, the amount of prospective jurors was, was originally 326. And, of course, it can't be people who have already been called for jury service and all this stuff. So um, there's a lot of constraints on who you can actually call for jury service. They have to be 18. They have to be, you know, in some places they have to be a citizen. So all this stuff. Um, but, yeah, why not? Why not put it a little further up north where hmm. the, the jurors don't have to worry about going home at night and, and going through, you know, riots you know i mean i agree with you it just seems like an easy thing you could have avoided yeah. but now it's going to be it's absolutely going to be in the appeal whether it will be enough and i for don't any... think that anyone would have found him innocent like you don't need the extra pressure of of that rioting it at least from my point of view it seemed really fucking clear that this guy was guilty like, well we're a bunch of of blue-eyed, you know, libtards who are going to lean that way anyway, right? I, so. Yes, but like the change of venue, I don't think would have made a difference. And the prosecution should have been fine with changing the venue. Yeah. If I w- it made the appeals process less risky. I mean, I I was curious about, I mean, you would think, I, I, I'm sure that there were reasons for doing everything they did. I I wonder, you know, I, I was going to chime in on like the, the profile, the high profile on this, trying to find uh, jurors who had never heard of it. You know, it might have been super hard in the days of O.J. Simpson because everyone only had TV and radio. You know, no one didn't know about this who was in the area to uh, to to be on the on the jury about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I I guess uh, so. I was going to weigh in on all that, but I, I I had a I guess after all that, we're talking about the you know the appeal, um, which people don't have to appeal their cases they just get to right and so there's no way he's not going to yeah i mean there are some forced appeals for like death penalty cases but for the most part i mean you don't have to they're going to yeah. they always do why why wouldn't you right. but yeah i mean you so, don't have to i i guess i'm kind of curious and you know we won't know until it, it comes around and how the appeal goes maybe they can drop some of the charges or something what what do you imagine being the best case scenario from uh chauvin's point of view and the like best case scenario for the public who wants justice like do you think it's possible he's going to get six months home uh prob- you know uh house arrest and a slap on the wrist and like going to go on to live a cushy life like well cushy in quotes you know like george zimmerman you know that that fucking nut job <laughs> you know he, he went on to make a quarter million dollars selling the gun he used to kill that kid right really yes yeah, so, i mean oh my god you know, wow if, i didn't if, know about that so if, if chauvin wanted to go off and make a celebrity of this and write a book (laughs) maybe sell his boots or something that you know he used and i i'm just saying like i imagine that would not a that doesn't sound like justice and b that is the kind of thing i can imagine starting riots and kind of i don't hope i never hope for riots but if i did this would be the kind of thing i would hope for well this is the kind of thing i would hope would start a riot all that all that i'm getting too far afield i my my original thing i'm curious what what is the least amount of punish, punishment you could anticipate him getting and the most amount of punishment? Okay, so the least that I could possibly see. So he was convicted of 
this uh, the felony murder charge, right? That is the most serious charge. That is the charge you'll be sentenced for. That carries a presumptive range of 10 and a half to 15 years. Prison. Oh, right. This is another thing I learned. Sorry. No, you're fine. But for our non-lawyer listeners, you can't stack punishments uh, for the same... Uh, Not for the same exact conduct against right. the same victim. Right? You, you can stack charges because he did commit multiple crimes right. while doing this, but you can't stack those punishments, no, which isn't can't. something I knew. So when you're when you're being uh, interrogated by the cops and they're like, we got you on this, that's two years. We got you on this, that's two years. We got you on this, that's two years. You're going to spend the next 20 years in jail, man. It's actually just, just the two years. They're allowed to lie during interrogation. Well, yeah, yeah, but... Well, no, because that's, that's not... So you can... It, one event could lead to multiple charges that are not the same thing. So, for example, if I broke into your home to to murder you, mm-hmm. I have both committed murder and bur- burglary because I, burglary is breaking in, into a home, essentially, to commit a felony. Okay. And so I've done both. And I could have those stacked because they're separate crimes. One oh. is breaking into the home to commit a felony. The other is the felony itself, the murder. Okay. Different things. Right. Okay. So These I, are the same. Right. If I held these. up a gas station, I illegally acquired a firearm, I held somebody at gunpoint, I drove recklessly, and I burgled them. Those right? could be stacked. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that, that makes sense because those are all different crimes. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so anyway, sorry. So ten, looking at 10 and a half to 15. Uh, yeah, typically. So... That's the presumptive range, which means he's going to get somewhere in that usually. That's mostly what he'll get uh, based also on his criminal history. He has apparently none. I I, I don't know anything about it, but apparently has a criminal history score of zero. So he will get the lowest presumptive range, which is 10 10 and a half to 15 years. However, part of the case that I haven't talked about at all is there's a second, second Blakely trial. And Blakely is this Supreme Court case that says that any fact that could raise essentially your sentence outside of that presumptive range needs to be proven to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. He waived that section of it. So there's going to be no jury trial. It's going right to the judge. So the judge is going to hear evidence of what what were some of the external factors in this case that make it seem more aggravated than your typical version of felony murder, right? And then they'll be able to defend with mitigating factors that make it seem less bad, I, I guess, than your typical example of felony murder. So it would, it could, um, it's not going to lower it below the presumptive range, but it could, with the aggravating factors, make it higher, right? The prosecution is intending to try to charge him with factors that will go much higher than the 10 to 15 years. Realistically, based on Minnesota case law, this is very highly technical, but the most he could actually get is 30, because I guess Minnesota's case law suggests that the highest you can get on these Blakely factors, these these aggravating factors, is double the presumptive range. So 15 is the presumptive max, double that is 30. That's the most he can serve. Even though it does say in the statute that it's technically possible to get 40 years for felony murder, 30 is the most that he could serve. Most likely, though, I don't, I mean, I, this is me totally speculating. I'll just say right off the top, I don't know. Yeah, at this point, we're, predicting, we're, we're guessing the future. Right, so, this is yeah. pretty tough, and I don't know blakely trials that well and i can't say for certain what's going to happen and and i haven't heard the arguments um however i think he's probably going to serve the regular 10 and a half to 15 right he's probably going to get on the lower end and he also has some time served because he spent like six or seven months in jail pre-trial hmm. so that's going to be credit against the amount of time that he has served but that, that it's he already been that many months it's been yeah almost a year since the incident wow. and uh he was in jail from i think early may until October, somewhere in there, or no, sorry, early June until October, some, something like six months of time. So, um, so yeah, he's going to get some confinement credit. He's probably going to serve, like, actually in prison around six 
to eight years is my guess. And the rest of it will be served on parole. Hmm. Uh, Cause I think in Minnesota, from what I understand, it's one third of your, of your prison sentences served on parole. Two thirds is actually served in the department of corrections. So two thirds of whatever sentence he gets, let's say it's 12 years, two thirds of that will be served in prison. So eight years and then four years on parole after that um, with some confinement credit that would count against the eight years he actually has to serve in prison. Hmm. That's about what he's looking at be hmm. right in there. We'll know on June 25th. That's the date of his sentencing. What month is it now? It just, it's just May. It's May, May, so, May 2nd. We're, we're waiting two months for them to decide the punishment? Well, they have to do so. They had the Blakely trial. I'm not sure when they're doing it. They, they may have done it already. I don't think they did, though. I think they're doing it like next week or something. But then they also have what's called a pre-sentence investigation report. This is something that most all defendants, uh, well, at least a lot of them, will, will have done. So they're, they're convicted. Usually it's after a guilty plea. They'll plead guilty. And then their sentencing date will be set out for like two months. That way, in the meantime, they can meet with probation, and probation will kind of go over a really lengthy re- like profile of them to see what their background was, how, what crimes they've committed in the past, what, you know, who they're like, in, you know, like what, what's their relationship status? Are they married? Do they have kids? Do they have family here? All this stuff. Just to get a full picture of who this person is to give to the judge so that they can make their decision for the sentence. The, um, I remember hearing, I don't remember if this was before or after the jury started doing the deliberations. Didn't a high-profile senator say something along the lines of, if there's a uh, not guilty verdict, that everyone should riot. Yeah, that was Maxine Waters. Uh, so, um, did, did putting the her jury, on blast. Did the jury hear about that? They may have. Uh, so here's the thing. Could it, that lead to a mistrial? Well, maybe. Uh, the thing is, like, so it's another appeal issue, right? So the jury wasn't sequestered for the vast majority of this trial. Sequestering meaning uh, they are put um, in a hotel and they can't leave. They're basically with each other at all times. Yeah. You think of the jury as like and they a have one a unit blackout. Yeah, and so they're they're watched. The more I hear about by this, police basically all twenty four hours when they're not in the court and stuff like that. They're you know they still are able to basically live in the hotel, but they are not allowed to. They're basically in jail, right? It cushy jail. Yeah. I the more I hear Being about paid. this, yeah, the more I am like shocked about how crazy the OJ trial was because those jury members not only did they comb the state to find people who hadn't heard about him, they were sequestered for eleven fucking months. That's amazing. That's insane. I wouldn't want to go to jail for 11 months because <laughs> someone else murdered someone. Uh, but like, I just, since then, it had been my my general understanding since I was still, you know, a kid, a teenager when this happened that like, oh, okay, whenever there's a big enough trial, they move the venue, they search the, the county for people, and then they sequester them for months at a time. And apparently that was just a huge outlier of a case. No, no, yeah. Seque- sequestration is very rare. Most juries by far do not have to be sequestered. They were sequestered for one night in this case. That was for when deliberations began, they were sequestered, but deliberations only went two days. Mm. So it was just that one night. Uh, but Maxine Waters made the comment like the day before deliberations began. So if that in that 24-hour or so window between when she said it and the deliberations began, they absolutely could have heard about it. You know, they were not under anyone's watch. They were just going home mm-hmm. what, 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 what was the comment specifically? If we don't have the exact wording, do we have an approximation? It was something along the lines of that they should the rioters should get more aggressive if there's a not guilty verdict. It was something like that. Something more confrontational, I think, is the exact word she used. So, so definitely it was in the vein of, like, there's not a plausible interpretation of that to where... Like, it seemed like she wanted people to riot. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So I, I was looking to see if, you know, because I 
I mean, I get why a short-sighted and not legally savvy senator might say such a thing. She's also in her 80s. Um, so. Oh, oh, oh I great. did not know that. Yeah, she's, a, she's an old lady. So They should I, probably take her Twitter away. What, while I can understand why somebody might say all those things again to make their base happy or you know signal their allegiance, it seems like a remarkably stupid thing to have done. Yep. Given that this could that this could be used as ammunition for like, look, the jury felt fear for their lives; they couldn't make a, a fair judgment. And so, someone someone could plausibly make that case. Yeah, and they're going. I guarantee you, they're going to. And Judge Cahill, the judge in this case, said from the bench right before closings began that Maxine Waters may have given you another avenue for appeal. I mean, it's, it is like plain as day. That is going to be one of the cases made on appeal. Absolutely. Man, that's annoying. Is she in Minneapolis um, or Minnesota? I don't remember where she's from. I don't, not Minnesota. I don't think, thankfully. Yeah, apparently imagine she said how quickly that she'd be voted out if she was a Minneapolis Senator. The exact words were get more confrontate, get more confrontational. I don't have the full tweet here because apparently nobody wants to link to the actual tweet in the news media. No, they want to link to other articles that they wrote. I've clicked through like three different articles now. They're just linking other articles. That was such a pain in the butt in doing some of the research for this case where I'm trying to find actual court documents. And then the site that talks about the case links to other articles they've written and not the actual complaint or the proposed jury instructions or something like that. Fortunately, I did eventually find the website that just has all of it. The actual like Minnesota state docket site where you can just look at that stuff, but yeah, I gave a lot of undeserving web scenes some clicks in the meantime. Jerks. I think about that every time I try to look for information online. Like, how do I downvote a website? Um. Well, I mean, on the plus side, your one click is very very small. It's the mass aggregation that is money. But I want to punish I them for doing. The I, I want to punish them for doing a bad job. Right, right, it's right, not, it's yeah. not as much that I. I mean, I have ad blocker. You want to vandalize their website? Yeah, okay. I, I have ad blocker. They're not getting us. They're not getting a percentage of a nickel off me. It's it's. I'm just annoyed. Yeah. Right? Um. I don't know if this takes us too far afield or how long we've been going, but I, I'm thinking in the in the context of cases like this going forward, um, I, 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 I like the precedent of uh, officers being, you know, empowered to testify against other officers. It seems I get, you know, there's a companionship among a, uh, you know, a precinct, right? You know, these these in on the days where you're not out committing murders, you're out there risking your life to keep the community safe. Um, and so, you know, on the day where in my mind, my coworker does something that the court has found egregious, but I, you know, no, he's a good guy. You know, I, I get how they might, I guess I'm, I'm trying to be as charitable as I can. And I can understand why much of the time you wouldn't necessarily want to be the first in line to go testify against your, your coworker who you've seen conduct themselves well over the last decade or whatever. Right. But didn't Chopin specifically have a record of like being abusive and having a lot of complaints against him? He did have, uh, from what I understand, I heard the number was 22 complaints lodged against him. However, hmm. that stuff can't come out in the trial because it's what's called character evidence. You're only The evidence that's admitted is only f- evidence of this particular instance, whether he committed this crime on the charge date, etc. I think the, someone's character is an important factor. It's very relevant. It's just that it's not, uh, it's not relevant enough. It's highly prejudicial, and that's why it's kept out. There's a specific, I mean, it's Rule 404, you know, that's uh, the character evidence section of the rules of evidence where, you know, essentially if you are, you cannot ever argue that, this person is a bad person, and on that day he acted in conformity with that with that bad character, hmm. right? The evidence of you doing bad things in the past is not coming out. That's so weird because to a Bayesian, that counts as perfect evidence, right? Hey, this person has slapped, uh, you know, 30 people in the last 10 years to the point of, of knocking them all down, right? And now he's on trial for slapping somebody finally, 
you don't get to bring up the fact that he slapped 30 other people. Um, because, but, and you know, I guess if it was a criminal record, maybe you would be aware of it. Like if they've been charged with it or something. Oh, weird. No, no I mean, there's criminal rec against defendants. Criminal records don't come out either. But oh, in the, oh. and so it's weird because, you know, I didn't watch the, the court part of this and yet the jury wasn't sequestered either. So they heard all about how George Floyd is actually a bad guy. And he, you know, he had a history of criminality, blah, 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 blah. Everyone got to, to read about, uh, all the all the cases being made that way. Well, he was and, a victim, not a defendant. So stuff about a witness or a victim could come out. Oh, right. Like for impeachment purposes, for example, mm. if you had been charged with a felon, uh, convicted of a felony in the last ten years, and you're a witness, they can impeach you with the fact that you're a felon. But defendants, you can't do that. See, I would really want to know if like someone was up on on trial for murder. Oh, of course, you'd want to know. I would. Like, is this a a great grandma type person who is off? Uh, all sorts of doing great things and it just seems highly unlikely that they would have killed this person or is this someone that regularly goes out and like you know knocks over convenience stores and threatens small businesses with their business burning down if they don't pay up like well the good news is you can bring character witnesses forward for the defendant during their case and if you do their character is now at issue and now character evidence can come in Oh, so they could so, have brought in a witness saying that this he's guy... He's a great guy. You know what I mean? Chauvin could have put on witnesses saying what a great guy he is. Well, but the then prosecution... that allows the prosecution to say what a bad guy he is. Oh, so the prosec could the prosecution bring in a witness uh, without the defendant having done something... A uh, defense having done something first, saying like, I was there when this guy just started, you know, slapping my friend and saying, give me a hundred bucks or I'm going to bring you into the police station on some charge. Well, was that part of the charges? No. Then no. I mean, no. like not for... Unless it was for another purpose, like if you were establishing that they were there, uh, you know, were you there? Oh, how do you know? Well, I heard the, the defendant say, I'm going to beat your ass if you don't give me $100. You know, they'd probably, the defense would probably object to that for eight different reasons. But but you couldn't be like, he did this a year ago, as this is part of a, a pattern of his of being abusive towards. Wow. Only sucks. evidence of that one instance. That's what's coming in. Okay. There so, are some exceptions, like, for example, if you're uh, historically have abused someone domestically, right, and then you're accused of it again, your history of having done this to this one person can come in, right? So there, there are certain exceptions that are carved out. Uh, one is for d domestic abuse. Like, if you've, if you've done this before, you can bring in the other instances, but I mean, the on the one part, hand, I can kind of see that, like, there used to be people bringing in the courtroom, oh, she's a total slut, she likes to sleep with men, and therefore she couldn't have been raped because she'd enjoy sex, you know? Like, that's the kind of thing where, like, fuck you. If I was on the jury, I obviously would not consider that any sort of evidence, but, like, I can understand wanting to not have that into your courtroom, but but it's different when you're a cop mm -hmm. abusing your power. <laughs> It's, it's, I, I get the, like a lot of these things I'm curious about. Um, and it's fun. Julia Gaylift did a good episode uh, a few weeks ago with, um, I don't know if he's a lawyer or just a law expert, but for the first half, they talked about uh, qualified immunity. And then it's great because Julia Gaylift is, you know, chill and, and positive. Mm -hmm. And at, at the end of it, she's like, all right, well, not that my blood pressure is sufficiently high. Let's switch gears <laughs> because it turns out qualified immunity as is, is as insane as it sounds, mm -hmm. even historically. Um, then she wanted to talk about like civil forfeiture. Mm, God, because she wanted her blood pressure to go down. Right. <laughs> All right. Because well, she was curious about more legal stuff. Turns out the origin of that is ships. Uh, if if you're shipping drugs from another country, I can't get to you, but I can steal your boat. 
if I'm mm. the state who catches you. Okay. So, it, you know, like that's one of those things. Where I like I like knowing the origins of things. So as far as that, the reason I brought that up is because the the origin of like, okay, look, we can't bring in character to shit on the defendant. Like if you're there for, I don't know, whatever, DUI, you don't want the state or whoever to be able to accrue a bunch of people to say, look at this guy, you know, go good, go get his high school principal mm. and be like, yes, he acted out in class. You know, well, I mean, like, it's especially dangerous, not anymore, but like in the early 2000s, like someone, if I was on trial for anything, I wouldn't want the state to bring someone in and be like, this guy's an atheist. He's an outspoken atheist, obviously bad citizen, and you should convict him because, you know, if he doesn't believe in God, what else could he do? Sure. And nowadays, that's not nearly as big a deal. But at the time, you know, I can understand not wanting that to be in a character thing. But but I think there's degrees of difference here. I, I agree. I just, I get how that, I, I'm imagining that's somewhat how the rule came to be in the first place. But mm. am I, do you know the origin or do, am I... On approaching on the mark. Um, no, I honestly couldn't say what where the you know general uh, non admissibility of character evidence comes from. I you know. Yeah, I I I'm, uh, I guess I'm less really interested in that as I I was trying to I was working towards another question about the the outcome of this. Oh, possibly influencing other um, cases going forward because. You know, like the police testifying, you had said you had said yeah, something about that. Police testifying and frankly just police getting in trouble. Um, you know, it happens but not as often as the public would like, otherwise they wouldn't be uh so uh up in arms about it, right? Um now I don't know how long we have again, what where are we at? Uh about two and a half hours. So we're probably don't have the time to, to crack the lid on I'm not sure how long yeah. We, we don't have the, we don't have time really then to crack the lid on the like police uh like abuse of force and public perception as a whole, unless you guys feel like diving into that briefly. Uh, or is that, I mean, is we that could, but that's, that sounds like a big can of worms, but we could, we could go into it if you want a little bit. I guess briefly, I'm, I'm excited at the fact that this might uh, set an example for what police can expect going forward. Cause at the very least, a small minority of cops are complete pricks and are happy to flex their, their power and be jerks to people. To, and I'm being as, as weak about that statement as possible, right? right. Um, I think that's uncontestably true. Uh, so I think the idea that, hey, look, you actually stand to get in trouble for doing this kind of shit, I think that's a great idea. Um, you know, some, some accountability for doing things. You know, like there's, uh, there's concerns where people are like, well, look, if you make them, you know, too afraid of litigation, uh, you know, that they might, um, they might not act on something. And it's like, well, good. Like, if you're so afraid that what you're doing might be might be wrong, that you might get in trouble for shooting this guy, if you're if you're on that if you're on the fence about it, I don't want you shooting that guy, right? Like, I can see there being a little bit of slack given to cops, but obviously not so much slack that you can kneel on a dude's neck for nine fucking minutes. Yeah, and that's kind of where I am with this, as far as it being, you know, uh, having broader implications for society. It's um, this case is pretty clear cut. I don't know what kind of precedent it's going to set. Um, it is nice when a police officer does something as, as brazenly improper as this, that they are punished for it. Yeah. Um, I mean, ultimately, I'm not a big fan of that kind of punishment uh, in general, just because you can't bring George Floyd back just by locking Derek Chauvin in a cage. But at the same time, you know, the fact that there is a repercussion for obviously wrong behavior mm -hmm. is, I think, valuable. Um, but also... This is a pretty good, this is a hard case to compare to other times because a lot of these kinds of cases are not so obvious. You know, Derek Chauvin, there was no doubt in my mind he was guilty of at least the manslaughter charge. 
right? You could argue that the depraved heart murder doesn't fit legally. You could argue that the felony murder, that it shouldn't have been charged that way because most states would not allow it to be charged in the way it was charged here. But the second degree manslaughter, at the very least, is like open and shut. And I just don't know what precedential power uh, in the colloquial sense, not in the legal sense, it won't have any precedential power legally, but the the what type of meaning it will have in general when this was such a, an egregious case. You know, I don't know if the, the average example of perhaps police misconduct is analogous because this was just so clear-cut. At the very least, we know that in clear-cut, obvious abuse murder cases, there will be people held yeah, liable. So the hope is that was never is, not the case, but yes, at least going forward, it's probably We're not in the certain. worst possible timeline. Right. So, Thank God. Nice. One, one other outcome I can see being possible is precincts being a little more dedicated to training their officers. If there's so much misunderstanding about whether or not this is what my precinct told me I can do or whether or not this is reasonable, if two officers who share an office can't agree on whether or not they've been trained the same way, like that strikes me as you guys need more training. Did you say something about two hours of physical um, restraining people training per year? Uh, two or four depends on the... I'm sure it varies across the country. Maybe some places do a yeah. dozen. That sounds but, ridiculously and, and that, low and that, for that's, a job. That's, that, that's not just the physical restraining part. That's that's like that's your training upkeep. You know, like if you're if you're um, if you're a doctor, yeah. you have to do continuing education mm-hmm. throughout your career. If you're a lawyer so, too, right? Because it makes sense. Because if you learned if you if you became a lawyer in 2020 and you're practicing 2045 and all your law knowledge comes from 2020 and and before you make a pretty shit 2045 lawyer, right? It so, depends. Some things don't really change, but yeah, there are some expanding areas of the law where you absolutely would need an update. Sure. In 2045, you'll have to be all up on space law because that'll be a huge <laughs> thing going forward. <laughs> I, I can't uh, wait. We can hope. But uh, yeah, so um, continuing education is a big part of a lot of, of careers that's like mandated for you to be able to keep doing that. I think in in enforcing the law, it can be as little as two hours a year, which when you think about it, like that's the amount of time I spend... Uh, dealing with my computer running slow a month, right? Like, I mean, I'm trying to think of just how much... I think I spend more than two hours a year making coffee. Yeah. I mean, I it's that, that's, a, that's a, a... I spend way more than two hours a year peeing. Yeah. <laughs> While on the clock, right? Yeah. Um, easily. And so, I don't know. It's weird. I And just in general, um, and this is my just like soapboxing about police and gen- like training don't get me wrong i'm, I'm a I, I come from a background of of being relatively pro cop i knew a lot of cool cops when i was a kid i went through the youth police academy i idealized the like uh you know what i what i perceived as a kid like the protector class of people mm-hmm. these are the people who rather than go off and do something fun they're going to be the ones who will be summoned to help you in an emergency um kind of like firefighters everyone likes firefighters i kind of picture cops the same way as a kid and you know but then it's weird how long how many hours or years it take you to become a lawyer like six well there's the four years of undergrad that's necessary then there's the three years of law school and then there's you know a little bit of time to study for the bar so all told probably like seven and a half years and if you trim out the extracurriculars that you have to take an undergrad we'll say five years you know? uh sure i mean yeah. just it, it doesn't takes matter. a while but I, I guess i'm just thinking because i think in some in many places you can become a cop with six months of training which means that it took you 10 times as long to become a lawyer as it would if you wanted to enforce the law instead, you could have done it with one-tenth of the effort. Like, that seems weird. Um, you know, if, if I want to uh, if I want to cut hair for a living or be a cosmetologist, it's, I think, in Colorado, like 2,000 hours of training. Which is stupid. Well, it's, it's a it high... It should be, yeah, I'm a, an adult that has put makeup on. If other people want to pay me to put makeup on them... Well, if, if I want to hire you to put makeup on somebody, yeah. I want to make sure that you know what you're doing. 
So, how, you know, you being credentialed, you know, kind of makes sense because I don't want you stabbing somebody's eyes with a mascara brush. It, or would whatever, right? def- it would definitely be something I consider if I'm hiring someone. But, like, if someone wants to just put their shingle out, like, I can put makeup on humans because I have eyes and fingers. Okay. Cosmetology <laughs> school aside. I don't think you aside. need 2,000 hours of training. Co- uh, maybe, maybe not. And yet you do, but you need a fourth of that to become a cop. Or, excuse me, half of that, right? Like, it just seems weird. Um, it... it when I when I imagined it as my my youthful bright eyed self, I I, th- I kind of pictured it. You know, I, this was before the movie Three Hundred had come out, but you know, like a kind of like a, a, a complete lifestyle. This is something you dedicate yourself to. And granted, you don't want it to be have to necessarily be that arduous, but it just blows my mind that it's that easy to become a cop. And not to go crazy on the cosmetology thing either, but I most people that get into cosmetology, I believe, are people that have been putting on makeup on themselves for many years and like have a lot of hands-on real world experience okay okay yeah yeah i don't know maybe maybe i'm getting too far afield here no no you make you make a compelling point about that particular example okay um but i mean there are are other professions where it requires training and upkeep that what i would consider to be a very essential part of the fabric of society they don't get that time and training right um you know you we need cops right we need somebody to show up if somebody's banging on my door trying to kill me Mm -hmm. i'm gonna be able to call somebody um and i don't have to you know if someone's banging on your door, it may be too late, but sure. I definitely want someone to investigate crimes after they happened and punish people who did the crimes Yeah. so that, in general, people will think, maybe I shouldn't do crimes because I'll be punished if I do. Right. I, I the, 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 the function and role of police in society, I think, is indispensable. It just, I feel like it's one of those things that could be, like, there's so much easy room for improvement yeah. and some, some not so easy room for improvement. So I want to hit one last thing before we call it a night or an afternoon. Um, you were saying that the two other cops are going to be brought up on aiding and abetting charges? Yeah, so it's actually three. The, there's the the cop that was controlling the crowd. Okay. Uh, I, can't, I can't remember his name. He's a Vietnamese, I believe. Uh, and then officers Lane and King, who were the original people who approached George Floyd. They are because the, those two were holding down George Floyd's, well, one had his knee on his back and the other was holding his legs. Um, and then there was the other gentleman who was controlling the crowd. Those three are brought up on charges as well. It's not, it, like I said, it's aiding and abetting, which is a, li- a little strange too. Another thing Minnesota does kind of strange, uh, aiding and abetting usually is not a crime anymore uh, unless, oh. unless it's after the fact. The only time now that you usually hear aiding and abetting is if you found out that someone committed a crime and helped them hide the evidence. That would be considered aiding and abetting like after the fact. But usually if you help someone commit a crime, you are just guilty of the crime. Oh. If you are the getaway driver for the bank robbery, you are guilty of robbing a bank. You're not guilty of aiding and abetting a bank robbery. But okay. they apparently still have it. So, uh, yeah, they're being charged with the, that lesser charge. And I, I haven't done my research on what aiding and abetting means legally, like a, like specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, that's they're, they're facing charges as well. Do you have any opinions or predictions on this or still too early? Well, no, I don't. Um uh, I can say this, though, Chauvin's trial, you know, I don't know how much this is going to mean because the trial got so much publicity, but his conviction can't be used against them. Hmm. So it's going to start basically from zero. That's really weird that his conviction can't be used. Yeah, it's a totally different case. If he had been found innocent, could his innocence be used? No. No. So he could be found innocent of a crime and they could be found guilty of abetting a crime that legally was never committed. Yeah, I mean, essentially... 
I told you this is way twistier than one could ever imagine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, how I your mean, nose that's... isn't bleeding all the time from knowing how to do your job blows my mind. That's yeah. I mean, it's it sounds bizarre, but it's absolutely absolutely true. Um, On a purely personal um, opinion, do you think that they should be prosecuted for this? Were they morally negligent, culpable for any of the, for what happened? I think at least somewhat, because like I said, at one point one of the officers says to Chauvin, like, look. We can't even find no a pulse. pulse. Um, that point, he probably should have stood up and pushed him off or it something. doesn't seem like they were necessarily cheering him on to stay on his neck, but yeah. they were not at all making any effort to get him off the neck either, um, and they didn't even really verbalize any sort of, like, protest. Yeah. Um, I think they're absolutely somewhat culpable. I don't know if it should be considered a crime. They ought to be ashamed of themselves. Uh, I'll say that much. I mean, I agree they should be ashamed of themselves, but so fucking what if they're ashamed? Like I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that this sucks that this happened to them, but I think they should be punished. So in the future, if someone sees their partner kneeling on someone's neck and feels the pulse go out, they'll think, "Oh shit, I could go to jail for this," and you know maybe steps up and pushes him off instead of being like, "Well, it's not me on his neck, so I'll just stay here." Well, I'd rather not that not be the reason uh, that you know. Oh, it's, he's got no pulse. Well, fuck, I might actually be in trouble for this guy's shit instead of you know it being about the guy who's dying but right, you, right. but you know I, I agree you know that it's uh and they won't face charges nearly as severe yeah. so even if they get time it won't i i don't know this the statute mm-hmm. um but i have a feeling they wouldn't spend prison time they might get jail time so at a lesser facility for a shorter amount of time but are jails um, not as bad as prisons yeah no um oh, okay. not generally i mean they may be Dep- I guess it depends on the location, but a jail is usually just like, you know, you think of it. You like a county. Like, right. Yeah. You know, it's just a I just figured that you were going to get abused and, you know, fucked up no matter what. Well, I've never been, so I can't to. quite. I mean, I've been to jails, but I've never been in jail. I, you know, I don't know how true those kinds of rumors are, but I, I will say that the hardest criminals end up in the Department of Corrections prison okay. right you don't usually county people are like you know you might see some people who are arrested on dy or some minor domestic uh, so dispute, if you go to a jail you probably aren't going to have to join a gang just not to be killed <laughs> okay uh, yeah yeah well, yeah so it won't be start. nearly as bad for them going to jail than the than the prison in jail you can do weekenders too you know if you're if you're sentenced to 16 days you can serve that over eight weeks or oh. yeah and just do weekends. yeah there's there's oh. various ways you can do it and a lot of places will do in-home detention rather than jail and and so you know if you're sentenced to jail it's a lot more flexible if chauvin gets uh you know prison time chances that he'll be killed in prison i have no idea okay yeah i, I, I have no idea i was trying to think about that they may uh, put him in some kind of non in the general population just so i would that think they'd have to as a cop so to protect them just a little bit you know yeah because, you know, as much as he should be in prison, I, I, I'm against execution. You don't want him to just get stabbed by a rusty, you know, shank, you know. Yeah. I, I was thinking about the same question of whether or not the uh, the fellow officers should be punished. You know, like, again, as not a lawyer, my opinion is if it, it seems to be the opinion of the court and of reasonableness in general that Chauvin was acting unreasonably. And they were present for that and should have been aware of that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um it and so that sounds complicit to me, right? Yeah. Uh, again, just like we were talking about, uh, if whether the their concern be, well, I could get in trouble too, or whatever. It's like, no, actually, I I just happen to notice that you're being unreasonable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just like if if we were out, I don't know if the bird is coming through on the microphone, but if so, I hope it sounds nice. Yeah. Um, the uh, you know, if we were out at a bar and you got in a fight with somebody and you were and you were crushing their neck. 
<laughs> and and I was there, and I'm I'm reasonable enough to know that you shouldn't be doing that. If I didn't try and stop you, I'm doing something wrong, right? No. So so just to that purely like abstract level, I think that they they are in some way accountable for what happened, especially too considering that they could have intervened and prevented it. Well, they and they right? more to the point, they were participating, right? They that, had their knee on the back and on the legs. Yeah. Um, at least the two of them did, and so in your example, you don't have really a duty to do anything because you're not involved right? You're just a bystander. So even though you may feel a moral wrong, there's typically no legal duty to help someone like that. Um, Unless you're a cop. The only time that there, that there is typically is for child abuse. If you are aware of child abuse, you do have a legal duty to report it, but otherwise, it's um, a good law. Yeah. And so, um, but other than that, you know, you don't really have a duty to rescue people or to tell Eniash who's beating up random bar patron. that he's I don't have a legal duty. I'm not, I'm not so yeah. much concerned about the law. Right. I, I'm, I'm concerned about what I think is right. Right. Um, and if I if I was present and didn't do anything, I would felt I've done something wrong. But you're right. They they were they were merely they weren't merely present. They were they were involved. Involved. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's I'm curious to see what shakes down with them too. But well, we'll see. Yeah. It's going to be pretty soon. I think It'll definitely be uh, this year. So, but I think I think the trial is scheduled for June. I think. Is this a normal amount of time between when a crime happens and when the trial happens? Honestly, it's pretty fast, especially oh, really? in COVID times. Um, you know, usually nowadays the trials have been halted for so long, but even back in normal times, uh, if you went to trial, a year is reasonable, but usually for a high profile case like this, it would take longer. There'd be a lot more fighting before trial motions that are filed and investigation that's done, asking for continuances, things like that. Jesus. But um, not, not in this case. I, I was just thinking, like, Getting charged with a crime, if you have to hold a lawyer for a year before the trial even starts, that's at least $1,000 a week. Well, um, I don't know. I mean, he may, Eric Nelson is the defense attorney. He may have his own payment plans. The way my firm typically charges clients is a, is a upfront. You, we, we take uh, an amount based on your case. And so, oh, based on you your don't charge type. like per hour. No, no, not that's that's uh, there's a lot of types of law that they do do that, but not for divorce law, they not, do. not for criminal. <laughs> you know, usually they just charge a, a flat amount, you pay maybe a chunk of that up front, and then owe the next over the next like two months or something like that. But yeah, okay. I usually charge one flat fee. And so, you just take into consideration this trial will probably take a year, so this is how much we're charging for this, trial. right? Yeah, how much would it be for a trial you think it would take a year for this case, the, like a high profile one, or just a typical case? Yeah, a typical one. Um, it would misdemeanor or felony. I mean, something that you assume will take a year to resolve. That could be either. I, I would say probably in the ballpark of like 3000 on average. You're fucking kidding me. Uh, so you have to take many cases. You can't have one case be your sole focus for a year. Well, it's also, yeah. And I mean, a lot of, you know, you, you do take on a lot of cases. Yeah. Okay. It'd be, you know, it's more for the, the higher profile case or the cases with, you know, if it was a case higher. where like it was almost the sole focus of all your lawyering for a year. I'm assuming oh, that'd be basically your salary. Yeah, right? you're talking minimum 50000 I would assume, at that point. But, like, you know, that's, those, those cases don't come around very much. You don't think the Chauvin case would cost them 50000 That one probably did. That one did. Okay. That one, because they called so many experts, and they had so much time and resources spent um, uh, cross-examining experts and, and things like that. There was, I'm sure, a lot of investigation done. There was a ton of discovery. You have to review all that. There was thousands and thousands of pages of documents. So they probably had to charge a lot. But your average case, no, I mean, you, the, the amount of work on any individual case is, is probably lower than you think. Huh, okay. Um, yeah, you got to think. I think with jobs with caseloads, you know, you've got 
it depends on what you do, but between 50 and 60 people that you're, you know, managing their cases, I imagine, I, I, I mentally visualize it as just like a, a file drawer full of names and, <laughs> and your job as, as managing the case, you make sure things keep going with every case and that, that things are in motion, the pieces are in place and that can take you 15 minutes a day, right? Or, right. or an hour a week. So of course you've got room to, you know, to juggle, you know, 40, 50 cases, right? It just seems crazy to me that I could you know, defend myself against a felony conviction for half of what my divorce cost. Felonies usually run you a little higher, like four, five, six thousand, or, or okay. maybe more, depending if it's really high, like ten, fifteen thousand. But just making him feel better. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> wow, I appreciate this this glimpse because I mean, like I said, the, the law is way more opaque than even my inner cynic would have guessed, and it's it's interesting getting. Uh, like an inside view on what this looks like. And it's also fun just on a meta level of talking to you about any sort of law stuff in general. Um, you you default to like, well, no, legally this. And it's like, oh, no, I'm not talking legally. And I have to make that explicit. And you're like, oh, you mean like not law? Okay, yeah. And I, I it's not bad. It's cool. That's your default mode of thinking because you're a lawyer. I think it makes perfect sense. It's something I finally picked up in like my late teens. It's like, oh, philosophers answer questions in philosophy ways. Biologists answer them in biology ways. Um, it's just like that's your specialty. Well, if I and, do that in normal settings, please slap me. But when we're talking <laughs> law things explicitly on a podcast, you know, I'll, I'll default to the law. Oh, lawyer. yeah, yeah. It's only with law stuff. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's like the the insights to what the system looks like under the hood is not something that I had any access to as just a muggle running around on the street. I could have put in, you know, lots of work maybe. You could always commit a crime. You'll learn a lot about the criminal justice system real fucking fast. If I ever get real curious and I don't want to read a book or talk to a lawyer friend, I, I might just do that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this advice not not endorsed by the Bayesian Conspiracy. Or any of its guests. Well, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. I loved it. It was fascinating. Oh, and we got started like in an awkward way because we did, you know, the soft intro. But Jace mm-hmm. couldn't make it this this episode, so. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, no, actually, obviously. he was here the whole time. Did you guys know? <laughs> did the mic go out? Crap. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we missed Jace, and uh, um, anyway, if you guys did too, uh, just meant to acknowledge that. So yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. Any, okay. Any other closing notes, anybody? Um, no, I, I think I've uh, I think I've exhausted you guys enough for for today. So. It was wonderful. I had fun. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you in two weeks. Sounds good.